hello and welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast. I'm your guest host, Simon Nainby, and today I'm going to be having an in-depth conversation with Tom Farrow. We're going to talk a little bit at the beginning on some takeaways around Sevens and, and Tom's career, um, probably for about half an hour, and then we're going to get into a, a deep dive into some interesting background to Tom's coaching story and uh, the, the company he's created. So, Tom, welcome. How are you? I'm good, mate. How are you? Very well, very well. Thank you for having me. Do you want to just? That's all right. No problem. It's a pleasure. Um, I'm really looking forward to this because we've had some fantastic conversations. We don't get enough opportunities to do that, and I think there's some really interesting stuff that I don't hear being talked about a lot. And I think you've got some fascinating ideas around the holistic approach to coaching. So I'm really looking forward to it. So, do you want to just give people a a little? resume of your your background how, how you got into coaching and where you're at now what you're up to yeah so um I, i'll start where i'm currently at i'm currently um leading the strength and conditioning program for england sevens men um alongside that i'm co-director of uh and and founded a company called arete performance uh who work with elite athletes youth athletes um schools teams uh you know sort of businesses uh regular individuals and we do some coach development as well basically probably been interested in snc long before i knew what snc was and from the age of about 13 14 i was writing my own training programs and writing programs for my mates and reading bruce lee books and following his training programs and arnold schwarzenegger's encyclopedia of bodybuilding and stuff like that um but never really knew there was such a thing as snc and sort of i dropped out of school uh, I've dropped out of sixth form um, when I was just before I finished my first year. So I was like 17, uh, a bit lost for a while. I ended up in a job in the city, quantities of aim, and completely by accident, absolutely hated it. Uh, did it for a year and then dropped out of that. And again, was in this lost phase of looking for stuff to do. And I, funnily enough, stumbled across a training day at Wasps Rugby with uh, Josh Lucy, which was a maxi muscle promoted thing. And when we was at the training day, there was a guy that was helping Josh Lucy out, which I think must have been one of the interns now, thinking back on it, but at the time, he was like, that was his job to help train the rugby players, and I thought that was quite a cool job. So um, I spoke to this guy I know called Cy Nambi, who um, talked to me about <laughs> S&C and used to, <laughs> used to take me through some sessions and stuff and um, uh, led me onto a few websites and the Francos and um, who else was it, Westside Barbell and uh, Elite FTS. And that sort of like peaked, you know, I just started lapping up all these articles and, and books and any, and sort of any book that Louis Simmons said to read on super training, science and practice of strength training, all these old sort of Russian texts. I just started reading all of those and, and it was this long road then back to university to, I had to study, I had to go to like a night school for a little bit and then do a, an entry degree. And um, I, I ended up at Loughborough for a year studying physics by accident because I Want to go to Loughborough? Who <laughs> ends up studying physics by accident? Yeah, exactly. Because they wanted me on on pure sports science, so they said I could do sports science and physics. But I had to do a foundation year in physics. Uh, so when I got to the end of that and realised they wouldn't take me um, on pure sports science, and they they wanted me to carry on the physics, I thought, well, I'm not really prepared to do that. So I left that and um, ended up at St Mary's studying strength and conditioning science, uh, which was great and it all worked out very well. Uh, from there, got uh, an internship at Wasps. Um, again, because of this guy, Cy Namby, helping me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then ended up 
after a year of working there as an intern, um, got a paid role, and uh, sort of because of people moving on, was quite fortunate, and I sort of moved in terms of responsibility. Ended up sort of co-leading a program only a year and a half out of um, of university. So, and that was alongside uh, Ian Taplin and Nick Chad. Um, Ian Taplin is now my um, co-director and, and business partner with Arito Performance. Um, so after a few. Uh, years with wasps left left that and uh did a little bit of work with the academy when i left just as a contractor and uh, around that time is when i sort of started a retail performance and at the start it was just me training people on my own and doing different sorts of consulting i uh, worked with the eis and gb kayaking um around that time started working with speedworks and jonas to do as well one of the top sprint groups in the in europe and around that time also got started working with the RFU in England Sevens as an assistant S&C coach. Um, so this is my fifth year, I think, with them, and my second year, uh, just coming to the end of my second year in, in the lead position. That's, that's um, it's, it's quite a, a varied path, that you know, a, a, a variable path that took you to that. I think that would be interesting to get into a little bit later. Mm. But... Um, what I'm interested in at the minute is just some, some quick takeaway points. So you've been in that role at the sevens for quite a while now, and you, you um, were dealing with some of the younger players who are coming in and now you're sort of heading up the whole thing. What sort of things do you think from, from your time working across the sevens, what sort of, what would be the three key things you think that everyone's looking at sevens now? What, what would you take from your time in sevens to, to apply to more broadly to the 15s game? You know, it could be grassroots, could be semi-professional, but some general principles from sevens that, that 15s don't don't pick up on too much that would cross, cross over well. I think what sevens is amazing at, um, because of the nature of the game and the space involved, is just how good each player has to be at their, with their foundational skills. So just their passing, uh, tackling, uh, you know, movement around space and 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 how they manage space is uh, abs- if you if you can't do that in sevens, you're going to get shown up quite a lot. So there's just the the standards of skill are so high because they're exposed in such a way that they have to be. Um, so I think 15s players can massively benefit from sevens in terms of just skill development because there's nothing like being just put in that scenario of sort of like seven odd meters either side of you. And somebody who's really fast and who can step really well in front of you to figure out that timing and distance in uh, both in attack and defence. Um, so, that, so there's that. Obviously, you know, fitness comes with that a little bit, which I think once there's a lot of the guys that come from our sevens environment end up going over to fifteens. And from a fitness perspective, in many ways, fifteens is a is an easier game. It's probably tougher in terms of the contacts and the, uh, a bit more, obviously, a lot more in that in that basis. Um, but at, at slower speeds, so um, you know, still probably the, the easier game overall than sevens in many ways. Um, and I think the other thing with sevens players is that they're they're more like individual athletes in, in terms of how they have to manage themselves. So when you work with individual athletes, they're they're so on top generally of every part of their program because they have to be, because it's on them, that's their career, it's all based on what they do. Whereas in team sports and, and 15s, and, um, you can hide a little bit and um, be a decent player without having to be absolutely on top of every little detail. Um, whereas I think it's harder to do that in sevens because you're exposed and if, you know, if you're not 
quite in the best shape you can be from a uh you know like a body mass uh, perspective or as in leanness because speed's obviously massively important in sevens uh, if you're not in that best shape you can be and taking care of yourself you're going to get exposed quite quickly and everyone around you sort of is is in that state the, the boys are incredibly uh disciplined in terms of how they take care of themselves so i think sevens is um you're more exposed as an, as an athlete and as a player. So you, you have to be on top of every single element of your game in terms of skill, physical ability, um, but also just the basics like sleep and nutrition and stuff like that. It's, it's becoming a little bit rarer at the moment for sevens players to go into 15s because so much focus has been on the sevens, particularly building up to Olympics, etc. But have you had any feedback of how players find it moving from sevens into the 15s, going to club environments? Because... As you say, it's, you know, there's a lot of personal responsibility and probably a bit more freedom given to them in that respect. And so when they go into the clubs, they find it very different. Have they, have they sort of struggled if they've gone across? Uh, I, don't, I don't know if they've struggled. They, there's certain things they find different in 15s from 7s would be uh, like reading um, like light, reading like running lines. And uh, there's obviously more like deceptive play in 15s than there is in 7s. Seven. 7s is pretty straightforward. There's not that many people to have to worry about. Whereas if you're sitting in defense in 15s, there can be so much going on in front of you, um, obviously trying to deceive you to what's actually going to happen, that the thing they struggle with most is being able to read those plays because that is you know, specific to 15s. Um, in terms of the environments, no, there's, no, there's no one that I think is, who I know of who's particularly struggled in, in terms of the difference. You, put, you obviously probably get a, a bit more closer attention than seven, it's just because it's, it's a smaller squad. Um, so, but there's no one I know of who's really struggled, I don't think, in that in that regard. Yeah, okay. And so, um, I know that you looked after a lot of the kids in the academy at Wasps um, at various points and you've done a lot of work with the academy players at the sevens. And then now, looking after the, the senior men's team. What sort of things do you think that young players coming through would, would really benefit from concentrating on to, to in order to make that step up? So you've got some talented players there playing in DPPs, EPDGs, things like that. Um, so they're sort of 15, 16. They want to make the leap into that kind of environment. What sort of things do you feel personally, having sort of witnessed the a couple of varied environments of kids that have sort of made that transition what what do you think would be helpful for them to be working on um the the, the key thing is the ones that get through are really really good at rugby so um, i think there is and having worked with like individual young athletes and you know spoken with their parents and things like that there is a massive um uh just misconception that the physical side of rugby is more important than it is at like the younger ages and and that's partly rugby and academy's faults i think in that you know they're always pushing for kids to be bigger and bigger and, and then if you go to like county stuff this it's even more so probably um but ultimately players get picked because they're, they're good at rugby um and they if they were really small then that might exclude them from you know breaking into a few environments but that's one of the places where sevens i think is filling the gap at the moment is um we tend to so the way it works in sevens is there'll be we have a a trial day at the end of every year basically to select the the young players the sort of 18 year olds coming in for the next season of which we usually pick two to five um depending on the year and and the size of the squad uh, that we've got and 
um, those most of those guys will be selected from academies who haven't been taken on to the senior academy uh, level the stage. So they would have been in the under 18s, but they haven't been taken on to the senior um, academy. And they get recommended by the academies. But they'd also some of those in there would be selected from um, university tournaments and and some of the like the super, the sevens uh, sort of national tournament <laughs> yeah they, so, they, so a lot of the guys that then get recommended to us from academies are they're very very good at rugby but they tend to be slightly smaller than maybe some of the guys that got through i think would be the generally the case uh, but it doesn't mean they're going to stay small because only 18 so then they can you know they can develop quite quickly between the age of 18 to 20 um and it's quite a good program you've got set up with sevens now so all those guys will get a year. The, year, the guys we select will get a year's contract, um, and then at the end of that year, it's decided whether you know it's best for them to stay with us for a little bit longer or go to university and still play to some of our academy tournaments. So we've got quite a, a growing net of players that have been in the program, but then come out. But we keep contact with them; and they still come and play with us a bit. But then, because one of the things they don't get a lot of opportunity to do, um, if if the young players coming through generally is play a lot of rugby in that first year, they might be with us because there's only so many academy tournaments in a season. So by going then to university or, or something like that, they actually then get to play a lot of rugby. Um, but having had that understanding of what it takes to succeed in, in, in elite sevens and, and how that whole framework exists. So um, yeah, there's a, there's a really good program growing in the sevens sort of the way it's been done at the moment. I think that's gone way off whatever your first question was. But. No, 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 no. It's, it's, it's absolutely spot on. And, it, and it's interesting because it's the, the level of support that is coming in for kids at that age. If you go to the DPPs, the developing player programs, mm. uh, the next one up, the elite player development programs and the access that those kids have to um, strength and conditioning support, nutrition support, uh, rugby support, where they get individual development plans, they, they have a lot of access to that kind of thing and it, it can set them up quite well. But yeah. but I think <clears throat> your, your main point is that you you can't beat access, uh, experience in the game and just playing a lot of rugby. Yeah. And so I think, I think the key takeaway there is is get out and play as much rugby as you can. And it, yeah. I suppose if, if you're particularly talented, it's to try and play rugby that's going to challenge you. So, you know, if your school team's really, really easy, then looking for club teams that are, are going to challenge you and you're going to have to work hard to, to yeah. develop your skills. Well, in I, I remember what the, the first question was now. <laughs> yeah, essentially that. Like, Prioritise rugby. and If you want to play rugby, prioritise rugby and being great at rugby. Uh, a lot of the guys that come through are great sportsmen. They're good at a lot of different sports. So... Playing lots of sports is is more like commonly known now is massively important. And then underneath that, so I'm always thinking in terms of hierarchy, um, in terms of whoever it is I'm working with and what I'm trying to get them to achieve. I'm hierarchically ranking different, um, almost uh, things they need to be doing in order to get to that thing it is they want to achieve. So if you want to be a great rugby player, you need to be playing a lot of rugby. And then under like there's only so much rugby you can play. So within like a physical boundary or just a logistical boundary of how many games you're on. Um, and then once you're reaching that physical boundary of, okay, I can't really play much more rugby because it's going to take a negative toll on the body, then it's okay, well, that's where we fit in rugby training and, you know, non-contact rugby. And then it might be different sports as well at that level, football, basketball, you know, whatever, different different sports. There's a lot of uh, great rugby players, uh, great cricketers, like in the hand-eye that comes with that. And, um, and then underneath that is basically speed and movement. So, you know, there's too much focus on young kids being in the gym, like, it's good for them. There's nothing wrong with it, um, but it, 
generally what they need is very basic and very um, simple. Uh, just, you know, they don't need lots of it. Uh, but what they could then spend more of their time and energy on is, you know, speed, running fast, moving well, um, change of direction, agility, which is one of the things we sort of specialize in with the company. And, and we really try and promote this programs that are very much focused on how well the athlete moves. So they're better able to solve those problems in their sport, which is going to obviously in rugby, rugby relevant problems. It's interesting, isn't it? Because there's a huge debate at the moment about PE because a lot of people use this term PE and in their head they're thinking games. So well, in PE, we're going to play rugby against X school or whatever and sort of missing the fact it's actually physical education. It's a topic that you go to school to learn about. Mm. And there's there's a real debate around that in education about what is PE. And some people just, you know, when they were at school, it, PE was just playing football or rugby or whatever. And, and that's what they've got in their head. So you go out and you play games where actually PE is, is something quite different. And I think it's the same with S&C. So people have this idea of S&C. And basically most people's idea of it is gym. But the reality is exactly what you just said. It's about getting people to move well and it doesn't necessarily even have to be those things and it's getting the quality foundational movements in. And I think that's really important with a lot of kids these days because I think there's a general lack of movement and activity in kids at a younger age for a huge variety of reasons. And it can be very simple things. So what sort of things would you be doing with with the um, the kids in the Arite um, youth development program you've been doing a lot of work online i've seen a lot of the stuff that you've been putting out um through youtube and twitter and instagram it's it's really fascinating stuff and i think people would be well served to have a look at it but what's the sort of thinking behind the movement program things you're doing with the retail and and what sort of things are you doing there yeah so it's interesting what you said about um like where schools are because it's something that we've definitely noticed and and we have uh, sort of contracts with a few different schools and with the longest running one of those and where we're most embedded is um, RGS High Wycombe. So we've become, you know, very much ad- advised quite closely on their curriculum and, and spread uh, an athletic development program across their whole school. Um, and what, you know, we've got a, a whole sort of particular philosophy around um, uh, and framework for how we develop sort of youth athletes and sp- particularly in the school system. And the philosophy we call is, um, is play. And it's P L A Y, physically literate athletic youths, and um, but that model is built on that balance between what you could call physical education, or we call the foundation, uh, where you get more stability um, and and structure, which is you know basic exercises, basic movements, um, you know, and, and mastery of the body in a more controlled environment, um, and then the other side of the program is the more game based type. Um, um, activity which we'd call the freedom that's the more bit more chaotic environments um it's where sort of their understanding of um space and different um types of games are and are developed and that's where they're stretched and challenged so um it's important that you get a bit of both and that's very central to you know the rest of our retail um uh, philosophy which we can get into a little bit later but particularly in the in the school environment is and and then for young athletes you you need some foundation you need your foundation is your your basic understanding of basic movements and how you control your body which the better capabilities you have there enable you more opportunity in those chaotic environments it gives you a better framework to be able to go out and solve problems in that chaotic environment yeah and i think the way in which you learn those movements is important from that variability aspect because 
if you're taught in a very strict and controlled method all the time, I mean, there's a place for that generally at the beginning, but it limits your um, it limits your exploration and your experience of getting that movement. So that's something I know that you're quite big on. And so, you know, in a simple term, it might be those kids are doing some body weight squats and some press ups. What what would be your approach to to doing that kind of thing with kids so that a it's interesting and engaging, but b it's laying a foundation for them learning movement that will set them up later on when they're learning more complex things that they 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 almost know how to learn. They're learning how to learn effectively. Yeah, exactly, and and it's how so we do that. We do body weight squats, we do body weight movements, we do press ups. But the way we fit them in would be embedded within a more fun um, session. Like it wouldn't be an hour long session of squats and press ups and so on and so on. It would be a bit. You know, you're giving them a little bit of structure. And then a little bit of play, and then a little bit of structure, and a little bit of play. And the younger they are, the less structure you're going to give them, and the more play there's going to be. And then as they get a little bit older and, and start to develop a little bit more, you just ramp up how much of that structure there is. But you're always biasing it towards play because even the oldest kids we're going to work with in a uh, school setting are going to be 18. You know, the, and and to be fair, even in a in a professional setting, it, there should be a, a huge element of play and problem solving. Um, and if there's not, it tends to be quite boring for those involved. So ultimately, you are able to solve problems because you're used to solving similar sort of problems. Um, so if you don't put them in environments where they have to solve problems, they're not going to be any good at it. So um, we are giving them that structure, but we're embedding it in something much more engaging, which might be races, which might be uh, games, but some uh, you know just random play, random obstacle courses. Um, and and you're very. It's one of the things you've got to be very. I'm always very conscious of with any any group I'm working with, or any individual is like the energy of that session. Like, where, is it if it's flat? Why is it flat? What can you do to make it not flat? You know, how can you? You've got to have games and drills and stuff on the edge of your um, fingertips, almost ready to be able to push either way. Sometimes it gets too chaotic, and you've got to rein it in. I've done sessions with um, uh, Fulham under nines and under elevens where I was teaching them wrestling, and it was absolute madness. <laughs> <laughs> it was an amazing coaching experience to have to then figure out right okay it's just nuts how am i gonna get them to just half um, like listen to what i'm saying and and half engage with this because they were just going mad but um and that's the balance of coaching is 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 trying to work between those two sort of extremes so that's really interesting because that sort of leads really nicely into the deep side of the conversation that I want to have for you now. So that's like the first sort of quick takeaways. And if people are interested in exploring those aspects more deeply, we'll, we'll speak at the end about how they can contact you, but it's balancing chaos and structure. And I suppose you'll probably, there's a slightly different word you might use for that. And I, I remember sitting down in Gloucester, I think it was probably 2015 and having a conversation with you, it was supposed to be in a break between sessions of a CPD we were on. And I think it probably went on for like close on three hours, this conversation. And you introduced me. Usually last three hours. Yeah. Yes. It's it's a fairly standard conversation. Yeah. So um, you introduced me to a whole load of ideas and it was the formulation of, of, of what you're doing now. And, and it's reflected in, the logo that you've got, the mission statement of the company, the name of the company, that kind of thing. So let's dive off into that. And so you, you, the thing that sparked me there is, you, is you're talking about a, a balance of sort of chaos and structure, which we might say order. What 
what was the story behind what is the logo what's the story behind the company that kind of thing because i think it's fascinating as a as a foundation for, for what you're doing yeah so i'll start off with the, the how i got to developing that philosophy so i was working and it was you're right around 2015 it would have been um and probably the year leading into that where i was working with um dis and gb canoe um speedworks and jonas and the, and the sprint guys and then the rfu um and england sevens and um then i was doing you know i'd started the, the business as such but a lot of that was me doing sort of one-on-one training with sort of athletes and and all sorts of individuals from um you know young younger younger athletes or up to i think you know like 17 year old 70 year old women some of which would had like neurological um diseases and and you know the principles were always the same regardless of who I was working with in terms of training. Um, but particularly with the sporting situations, I was trying to, I was thinking, you know, what is the thing that connects all these sports above the level of the sport? So I'm going into all these places. I'm having to solve problems very, very like quickly walk through the door. Um, I think I was responsible for programming for about a hundred athletes that year. And then I, I think I worked out like by the end of the year, um i think i would have worked with like actually coached but not necessarily written their whole program um maybe over like a thousand athletes that year so i've done a massive amount of coaching uh, but i also managed to get um a lot of time in between like personal training sessions and i want to say a lot of time there wasn't much time left in my day but i'd get little moments in the day where i'd sit in a coffee shop and i'd just think and reflect and write and um and, and try and figure out my world almost figure out all these different um, experiences I was having. And around the same time, I was listening to a lot of uh, Jordan Peterson and his, uh, his lectures that he's got online. He's got a couple of lecture series online, which are amazing. I think everyone should listen to. Um, on And he was talking about a lot about mythology and religion and the foundation of story and psychology and, and, um, and uh, neuroscience, really. And how, you know, so I'm, I'm very interested in what connects... Um, all of us what connects um you know mastery i'm mo- mostly interested in mastery really and it's, you know what is key what's consistent across uh, different disciplines is what i was trying to get to so um what i came up with is, was this idea that um what we're ultimately trying to develop was heroes and this was very much influenced by uh, jordan peterson and joseph campbell and carl jung in terms of like the mythology and stories and so heroes are those who are able to face chaos and prevail uh, bring back something of use to them um, face their unknown and 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 bring back something of worth that they, they ultimately wanted to achieve so i you know i, I then started to work through this philosophy of like well what do we ultimately want to achieve with anyone we work with and it was like well we want to cultivate heroes um and i remember having a conversation you being quite clear on why i wanted to go with cultivate i think the first word i came up with was create heroes and i was like well we don't really create anyone you know that everything when you work with someone whatever they can become is completely implicit with who they already are um you know like and, and the seeds the perfect anal- the perfect analogy when the, the seed becomes the flower everything that the flower is is completely contained within that seed but it's not necessarily obvious at the point that you're at the point that it's a seed so cultivation um worked really well with that so our aim is to cultivate heroes heroes are those who can face chaos um, and prevail how do we prevail amidst chaos how do we get good at prevailing amidst chaos and it's well we need frequent exposure to chaos but lesson I took away from that year um, that 
you know, a very real lesson that I lived was that too much chaos can destroy you. Um, and, and that took me till the end of the year to really learn that lesson. And, um, you know, I'd gone, I'd been exposed to this idea of ordering chaos. I, I was, I, it was clear to me that people tend to be biased to one side or the other in how they live their life and how they, and obviously it's different in different realms of your life, but generally, and I could see that I was quite biased towards chaos. I like to, you know, push like my boundaries to the point where it's actually done too much before I had to pull back. Um, and I'd definitely done that that year. So, um, uh, my wife Kate was studying medicine for the first time, uh, first year. She just got on that year. We had a one-year-old. Uh, she was uh, pregnant with a um, second child, Mia, and she uh, was tw- she was studying medicine in Warwick, uh, which was two hours away from where we lived in Twickenham. So she was driving up and down doing that. She's obviously also biased towards chaos, as you can see. Married to you, yeah. She's a great mix. Um, the and at the same time, I was I had a motorbike. I was waking up at basically five five thirty every day, going out, starting with personal training, and then I'd either be in um, East London in uh, Edmonton at Lee Valley. Um, I would be in um, Twickenham with either the kayakers or the sevens. I would be in. Uh, Bisham Abbey with sometimes EIS and the kayakers, or I'd be in uh, West London doing personal training. And then in the evenings, I might be doing like uh, some consulting with like Richmond. I was doing some contact skills work with Richmond. Uh, so, and in between all this stuff, I was flying around on this motorbike, like trying not to die on the A406, basically. Um, and so by the end of it, as you can imagine, I was completely burnt out. Um, we got to the end of the year, we moved out um, of our house, um, I think. The day we moved, the day that Kate had a first round of medical exams, <laughs> like uh, the day before or something like that, it was just mad. Like by the end of the year, I was completely wiped out. I was probably pretty depressed, and I didn't really realize that till a couple of years later that that's what I'd been. Um, and it was chaos, and you know, and it very much learned that lesson of too much chaos will destroy you, which is why chaos in the stories is represented by a dragon, because dragons can kill you and they breathe fire and they're dangerous, and you should treat them as such. Um, so going back to the coaching philosophy, then it was, you know, we need to expose our, uh, the people we work with, athletes or normal individuals or even organizations to some chaos so that they can grow because that's where we grow. But also there needs to be a foundation and there needs to be some order and some structure that gave them that foundation to be able to face the chaos. Because without, um, say, the hero, going back to the story analogy, the hero has a foundation of skills. And if you look, if you think about stories and say Batman and so on and so on, they're, they're, you know, they're quite disciplined individuals in the story. And that's quite consistent across stories, you know, they're humble, they're disciplined, they're, they have a lot of humility and, um, and they're the sort of uh, foundation you need to be able to appropriately face chaos. So I recognize that the job we're doing as coaches ultimately is balancing ordering chaos for the individuals we work with um so and that was very useful for me because then i started being in new every time i went to a new environment i'd rather than trying to think you know about right here's this fixed idea of what i'm going to do here i can pay attention to is you know what's chaos for this group or for this individual and what's order and the simple way of telling that is well are they comfortable or uncomfortable okay right well they're comfortable they're too comfortable okay right well we need to create some disruption like this in order to stretch them um and if they're and you get a lot of people that they can be in chaos and you can see they're uncomfortable and that chaos can be uh physical chaos too much which would be injury they've been injured in some sort it could be uh tactical or technical 
chaos where they tend to be a little bit, um, you know, they're giving up a bit of hope, you know, lost interest a little bit because they've not, um, they can't keep up with what they're supposed to be doing. Um, or it can be psychological chaos, like they can be in despair for, for a number of different reasons. Um, and then also on the flip side, there can be too much order. Um, in the physical sense, then they're not, they're not developing because they're not being stressed appropriately to develop um, physically. Um, and then the same in technical tactical, they're bored, they're, they're sort of motivational despair towards that because it's not challenging for them. So it gave me this framework that I could go into any environment and be with any individual and sort of have a starting point and then work backwards from there. Cause then from that point, I'm adding the details of their, um, their disciplines. So like what's okay. What's chaos for their discipline? What are the best athletes? What problems are the best athletes solving? Okay. Ultimately this is where we want. These are the problems we need these athletes to be able to solve. Um, so that, and that's where the sort of whole philosophy grew out of and was influenced by really. It's interesting because it, it takes a little while to get your head around it. Some of those lectures that uh, Jordan Peterson has online, it can take a little. I remember you told me in 2015. I didn't really probably get into it properly till 2016. Um, but but once you start to get your head around it and you understand it, you just see these things everywhere. You see the order and chaos. You see um, the sort of hero story, and uh, and it, and like you say, it's actually very helpful for you to be able to assess situations. It's it's a, it's, it's like a, a a meta principle, effectively. Yeah, and it gave, and then, and having that as well, that philosophy probably saved me in a lot of ways that year, because I had a narrative to be able to um, understand what I was going through. I could understand I was in the depths of chaos. I had no, even though I was working like that. The, our outgoings were huge because of childcare costs and the um, wife driving up and down um, from uh, Warwick. Uh, so I was in the depths of chaos and i knew it, <laughs> and it was like, but having a narrative and understanding the flood you know the and that's you know the next part of i suppose of philosophy is that a retake curve that you know the, the 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 swoosh the down and up in that sense is uh that's originally i'd thought of because of biology and stimulus adaptation and then as i started to learn about the hero story i was like oh that's the same story as the hero you know it starts off in a place descends into chaos in some form or other at, at some point in the story they're going to bottom out in terms of that chaos and then they're going to start to build themselves back up and at the end of the story they're going to be a, a, a more realized uh, better version of their, themselves and so i could see then that okay right I've, I've gone too far i need to pull back i need to i can't carry on all this stuff i'd said yes to everything because i was interested in learning and wanted to be part of these environments that had sort of offered me these opportunities um but uh, in the september sort of starting the next season basically after that year i um i I had to stop working with the IS and, and Speedworks, and then I focused on Sevens, which logistically made a lot more sense for me, but also um, was uh, you know good good balance for me in terms of the exposure to all the the different things I've been exposed to so far, uh, and that also was a place where I could probably express my abilities most because rugby, you know, the, the contact skills background, but also the speed background, and I was very you know into sort of speed and agility anyway so that was a place where i could really express my abilities and, and, and wanted to yeah I, that's definitely something i want to get into is the contact stuff but i think quick just quickly we should talk about i think we're talking about the your, your logo so just explain that because people you said the the, uh, the arite curve and it also sits within a, a bigger logo sort of where it's a it's not necessarily a logo for you but it's it's a diagram that you tend to put on a lot of your work. So do you want to just yeah. explain about that? The, the, the main logo would just be the curve. but So I had the curve as a logo for from the start, basically. That was the first logo I came up with. Before I understood 
order care or any of this stuff or heroes. I didn't like I say, I, it sort of seemed to fit, which is funny how things work out after I learned more of this stuff. And at the same time, again, influenced by some of the Jordan Peterson stuff. And he'd talk about the Taoists and how they talk about order and chaos. So he would say that the yin yang is a representation of order and chaos. And the Taoists would teach that you should um, live with your foot on, on either side, one foot on either side, because like I said, too much order is boring and too much chaos will destroy you. Um, so I was, you know, I was, and I, I was into sort of Eastern philosophy anyway before that and, and Zen Buddhism, and I've been reading lots about that. So I was sort of drawn to that symbol anyway. Um, and then when I looked at it, I realized that, oh, actually, if you flip it a certain way, not the way it's usually sort of portrayed, our Rite curve actually fits really nicely onto that. Um, and then so the, the most um, the most recent version of that symbol with like the, the brush stroke sort of effect, that is comes from um, the, the outside circle of the yin yang. If you take the yin yang and you take the curve away and just have the outside circle, uh, that's actually a Zen um, a Zen picture. It's, it's called the Enzo, which would be a single brush stroke around in a circle. And what that represents essentially is the moment. So one of the other things we talk about uh, in our philosophy is that you know the player and the athlete and the individual only ever exist in the moment. They either solve the problem in front of them or they don't. So there's nothing that we can do that guarantees they're going to solve that problem. We're not approaching any problem going, if we do this, we absolutely know this is going to be the outcome, which I think there's a problem in uh, yeah. sport in that it's shifting more towards that trying to predict the future with technology. And regardless of whatever technology comes up, um, you will never be able to predict the future. And if you did get to that point where you could, then team sports wouldn't be team sports anymore and no one would want to watch it. So uh, we're sort of trying to think as like, well, we're trying to develop people to be able to prepare to face these unknowns. But we, we're not trying to tell them that they're ever going to be able to predict the future. Um, so, and then, you know, that's where that whole sort of uh, yin-yang, the, the Arita yin-yang, as we call it, is um, that's where that grew out from. It's, it's really interesting because... It's, it's interesting to sort of read some research and then see that in it. So um, you took, there's research talking about the Rocky Road, which is that you have a sort of talented youngster and for them to really make it to the top, they need to encounter some difficulties early on that equip them with the skills to be able to prevail when they're much further down the line and, you know, they're facing the big dragons, but they've been through some hardship and some difficulties. And so you look at a lot of the, the traditional stories, um, from the bible or various different places and it was just a way of sense making about making sense of the world and so all these things now i look at rugby and I immediately think of things like that so you know the teams are far too ordered teams are far too chaotic and that's straddling the line between order and chaos you just start to see it everywhere and, and like you said it, it does give you those tools to be able to think about assessing situations yeah, and it's an incredible hard play. It's a hard, hard thing to get right. It's so hard because none of us are that person that is the perfect balance. We're all biased to one side or the other. So great organizations get a good mix of people that are centered around a similar um, overall vision uh, and share at least parts of their philosophy. But you need orderly, detailed people and you need more chaotic um you know, ex, uh, almost like uh, explorative individuals, um, you know, engineers and artists, you need this blend of that. And you'll get some people that are really uh, somewhere in the middle, but most people are sort of more to one side or the other. So the, a great organization allows 
these people to exist side by side and almost allows them to have a voice so that voice can converge in the middle and then the ultimate thing is some balanced approach that works for everyone but that's a very very hard thing to get right and and i think that was one of the sort of very first articles i remember reading that you'd written was um you'd read zen and the art of motorcycle motorcycle maintenance and you'd taken away quite a lot from that along that sort of line and that's probably one of the the best books I've ever read. It, again, it is very, very hard to get into, but once I started reading, I couldn't stop. So do you want to just talk about how that is referenced in that book? Yeah. The classic so, and romantic, so, because that was quite interesting. Yeah, so Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, probably, la- well, that laid the framework, really. That laid the foundation for me for uh, this understanding of order and chaos, in a sense, because uh, when I read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, um, he introduces these two uh this dichotomy, these two modes of thinking, which he calls in the book, Robert, uh, Robert Persig is the author, um, calls um, the romantic and the, and the classical. So classical would be your more like engineering, the uh, like square type way of thinking, you know, very straight uh, and you know, mechanical. But um, the romantic would be the artistic, fluid, um, much more explorative mode of thinking. And the book is essentially about how he brings those two qualities together and he uses the term quality. And I remember it being like a, it felt, it was probably my first, what I'd call like a, not a full enlightenment, but an enlightening experience. I remember reading the page in the book and um, he's talking about these things and he's talking about this, this thing as he terms it quality, which connects these two realms. And as he's talking about it, and I'm like, this sounds like um, a retail. Like, so a retail, I don't think we define no. it, but a retail is uh, comes from ancient Greece, and it essentially um, is it represents excellence. And it, the definition would be to live up the act of living up to your full potential. So it was very much attributed to uh, ancient Greek heroes, um, and the um, so it's something that you know, as an idea, as a, a philosophy in itself, it's something I'd read into. Like prior to reading Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, and the company was already called Arito at this point. And I'm reading Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, and as it gets towards the end, I'm thinking, you know, he's gonna. I think he's gonna mention Arito. I was quite excited about this connect, you know, these things connecting that I had the company name, and then, and I'm reading this book that I was really into. Um, and the reason I read the book was just again the name. What, like appealed to me so i picked it up one day in the shop no one even recommended it to me it's just a name i'd heard and seen and something like that and then there's one page that where he sort of brings the whole book together so it's a bit of a spoiler and you know, <laughs> and he defines quality as a retail and the def- the definition of a retail over these couple of pages and if if you look in my book my version of it i underline stuff in books when i read them and the, the most of these two pages just underlined and like in this frantic excitement of me <laughs> recognizing this, uh, this, oh, look, this is that thing and this is it and it connects and this is this. And it was like, wow. And it, um, you know, and it, that, that, that framework, the dichotomy of those two things as he dis, um, describes them was my first understanding that there are two broad ways of seeing the world. And then that obviously is what influenced the yin yang for the Taoist like 4,000 years ago, whatever. And that, and that's why when you speak to people in those terms, they get it straight away. They understand exactly what you mean. Yeah, you know, I've not had a conversation with people about order and chaos who don't just get it straight away. They're like, yeah, yeah, I get that. Even if they've not come across those terms. Um, so a retail is this quality, you know, there's quality on both sides. There's a, there's a way of being mechanical in an incredibly, um, in a, in a, in a retail manner in, in living up to its full potential. And there's a way of being fluid and artistic in its, um, to its full potential. 
it's interesting because quite a lot of coaches um, uh, pop up with their own little um, companies on the side. So they'll be working for a team and they'll create their own little consultancy. And it seems to be quite fashionable now to have some sort of Greek Latin name to give to it, etc. Yeah, and it, and it has a, a little bit of a story to them. But I, I've definitely never come across anyone who has so much depth of research to it. And so what sort of time for it period are you talking about to sort of bring all these things together? So I, I suppose some of it could have been subconscious, like you hit on a retail and then it was really interesting to see that come through that depth of reading into, into fit and perfect. Cause a lot of the things you talk about and a lot of things we've sort of spoke about over the years, they all start to fit together into a really good model to help you make sense of the world. Well, that's the, the most, the, fun, the thing I find so fascinating about it is almost how I've come to, find these philosophies and how i've stumbled upon them and it has very much been stumbling upon them by following my interest which is something jordan peterson sort of talks about following your interest and um i uh so the retail thing is is fascinating so i read a book in uh probably my second year of university called the social animal by david brooks and in that he, it's a story about a kid <clears throat> about how he developed but the book's a story about success and successful and unsuccessful people, but it's told as stories and he creates these characters. And in the story, the boy in the book um, isn't that engaged with school. Um, and then he has an English teacher who sort of uh, motivates him and inspires him. And he gets interested in some ancient Greek stuff. And one of the things it talks about in the group is uh, three different ancient Greek qualities. And one of those qualities was a retail. So when I f- that's when I learned the definition of a retail was reading that book. And it was three, I can't remember the other three, the other two, but I, I searched all of them, what they meant. And then retail, and as soon as I read it, I was like, oh, that's really cool word. Like, what that means, I really, really connect with. Um, so that's where I had the idea of using a retail for the company name. Then this was before, obviously, I was still a student, but I knew that I was always interested in business and and wanting to do something like that. So I sort of, I thought, well, what if I have a business or when I have my training business or whatever, I'm going to call it that. And then I was back and forth on it for like probably a few years because I was like, oh, can I really call it that? It's a bit of a funny word. And a REIT is how you'd read it. And that's like, hello in Newcastle. And a RET in uh, French means stop. So stop performance isn't a great name. Um, so I was back and forth on it. And then I think after a while, I was just like, you know what? I, I love what it means. I don't care that no one knows. You know, I, I just call it yeah. What what's Nike? No one knows what Nike means. No one knows what Adidas means, and it doesn't matter. Like so, um, you know, I did that and went with it, and and then all this other stuff fell into place. So I'm really happy I did. But one of the things I did so when I um, I was like I was talking about before that I got interested in training because of reading Bruce Lee and stuff like that. And there's a Bruce Lee biography uh, which I read when I was 13 or 14 called um, Fighting Spirit by a guy called Bruce Thomas. Um, and Bruce Thomas is a was a guitarist for Eric Clapton, I think. So he was like a master of guitar, essentially. And he talks about mastery a lot in this book. And he talks about Bruce Lee's approach to it and his philosophy. Um, so I went, I read that book when I was 13, 14. Haven't read it since until a couple of years ago. Um, and I read all, you know, all this other stuff and all these different philosophies. And then I went back and read that book. And it's like this tattered old book. I think I got it from a... I found it on holiday or something like that. You know, they sometimes give away free books and I just kept it because it was, I loved it. And, um, and then, so I went back and read that book and it was, it, I, I read it and I'm like, this is the best book on coaching ever. <laughs> you know, I'm, 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 I must've been at that point, uh, what would have been like 17 years down the line from when I first read it. 
and all the stuff I'd read, all these different bits, and it was still, well, I was like, this is so true, and this is so spot on. And in that book, he actually talks about Arite specifically, and I was like, wow, how cool is that? That, that probably was embedded there somewhere, yeah, yeah. waiting to be rediscovered and reignited and connected with all this different stuff. And so it's pretty cool how things like that work, I think. It's really funny, that, isn't it? And uh, I think the, the one thing you sort of touched on there is follow your interest. And I think that's been really fascinating for me is um, – it's a great guiding principle because if it's something you're interested in, I was reading some of my old school reports and some of the things they were saying about me as a character. And it was, you know, when he's not interested, Christ, <laughs> get, get, lock him up, get rid of him. But you know, when he's really interested in something like there's no stopping him. And, and so f- through my sort of coaching career, there've been a lot of things. I remember sitting down with super training and just like, not having a clue what was going on, having to speak to my dad to fight te- to get him to explain to me what um, le- different levers meant because it was just basically a physics textbook. Yeah. And, uh, and forcing myself to read these things and forcing myself to go and do things yeah. um, just because it was the sort of, the, oh, that's the done thing. That's what everyone, everyone goes and does that course. Everyone gets that qualification, reads that book. Well, you haven't read Super Training. And, and then when you get a little bit older, and you're like, you start to see through these things. It's like, no one understands super training. No one does. <laughs> and and so you're like, well, that's not that interesting to me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow what interests me. And, and you know, the place I'm in now coaching is the best coaching environment I've ever been in because I've sort of, uh, it's weird how you almost end up going to where, where you should be if you follow your interest. And that is pretty much what it sounds like you've been talking about. So where it, when you were sort of 16, 17, we were, we were both living in Essex. That, that would not have been the done thing at the time to be reading those kind of books or to be interested in that kind of thing. Where where's that come from with you? That's, yeah, that's that, a question I've ever asked you, actually. Yeah, that's. Um, I was going to say, I don't know, but I actually think I do know. And um, it's like when you talk about your school reports, like I, and I think, you know, we connect because we are like, these, you know, we're curious and we, we bounce these ideas back and forth off each other. And um, But... And I was probably always curious, but I was in, in school to say, like, my reports would have been that, can do better, you know. I, was, I went into secondary school, sort of predicted all, like, A's and everything because I was reasonably good in my tests, whatever you have to do, they're called in primary school. Um, and then from then, it was just down and down and down, you know. I discovered uh, the girls and fighting and basically and the least thing I wanted to do was anything to do with school. And I spent my whole childhood, mostly getting into trouble which <laughs> I, like, I don't regret you know the, my, the way I learned about the world in a, in yeah. a way now looking back at that and, and I wouldn't want it for like my own kids because I you know was far too close to danger and destroying my whole life numerous occasions but again that that chaos thing I mean I, I flirted with it and actually now that I'm on this side of it I'm like wow I was pretty lucky to go through yeah. what I went through but also be able to learn them lessons and be okay because it, it definitely has helped me as a coach and as a as a as a thinker maybe um so yeah so I went through school completely uninterested in school completely and then like I say I went to sixth form and I only went to sixth form because I didn't know what I wanted to do um and um I thought well I'll carry on going to school then I remember going to sixth form and um and it was at a different school but it was at your, you were at West Hatch, wasn't you? No, no, it was Bancroft. So, um, yeah, so I went to West Hatch, which is like a different school. A lot of my mates went to West Hatch, so there's a different group of mates that were there. So I was like excited about being with them um, and excited about um, be, still being in school. So I'm like running around the school, still like smashing windows. <laughs> <laughs> but everyone else, were, like most of the people in sixth form were really serious about going to university and they were smart and they dressed smart and they dressed like business clothes and I'd still be like tie wrapped around my head at lunchtime. <laughs> sort of thing. And um, 
so and I remember doing um, so I dropped out before the year finished and I think it was one of the like the early exams I got given it was a maths exam and I drew over the whole page like in basically in protest that like I don't want to be here but I'm here but I don't want to do this test I've not prepared for it I've not done it so I'm just going to draw on the, the whole paper and I drew over the whole thing and so then I dropped out and the way I ended up in that job was because there was a guy who worked in my road who was uh, in like recruitment or something like that and uh, my dad was fed up with me sitting around the house and doing fuck all basically so he went um, and asked this guy if there was any jobs going and he I went on an interview for an engineering job which is like much more hands-on type job and um, when I did the interview they um, I, I had to do a test and I was always quite good at maths you know not for just happened to be always fairly good at it and so I did well on this maths test and I was like would you like to do quantity surveying instead and I said do I get paid more money and they said yeah so I'm like great I'll do that but and, and I was very driven by money at that age because like my mates uh, we used to work for my mate's dad and we get paid like 30 pound an hour to work in his warehouse and he used to say to us uh, you boys should be paying me for this because it's like a gym workout <laughs> 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 like, really. it was great fun but you know we had bloody worked hard and um, but he was you know he was quite successful you know quite a lot of money and we, we wanted that we wanted money and we wanted to you know that's what we were sort of looking up to really so I was quite money driven and the I culture went, of the area was very much like that, wasn't it? it was, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, that, yeah, exactly. The school, and it's particularly Rodin Valley where I went. The, the, and that's where, you know, like, you know, like, that's where Tawi came out of, and it's all very like, showy and uh, materialistic. Very, very materialistic. So I was very driven by, like, and I wasn't, like, that way inclined in terms of, like, how you see, I was nothing like those guys, to be fair. <laughs> but, um, but it was, like, that was the idea. You wanted to get a lot of money, and, and, and you know, there's people driving around in Range Rovers everywhere. But then it was also probably quite a working-class area, really. It was a weird, it was a weird area like that. But um, so I got this job. I sat down the first day, and I was, and I remember hearing like the first bit of like office banter, like, you know, wanky office banter. And I was like, <laughs> oh, I've made a terrible mistake. Here. <laughs> and, I was, and at the time, I remember feeling really grown up. And I, I look at some of the 18 year olds now who are much bigger than I ever would have been when I was 17. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, wow, I must, I was this, this little kid in, in an office. And that was me for the year. And, um, um, and, it, and I think it scared the life out of me. That's why I got that. Um, that's where I then found that drive to want to read and learn and educate myself. It, it terrified me to be like, if I don't pull myself together, um, I'm going to be, this is, I'm going to be facing a life of this, like not wanting to be on this train with all these people doing stuff. They don't want to be doing and look at their faces. <laughs> I can't be doing this. And my dad was like, you know, practical, like dads were going like, well, just do it for five years and you've got your qualification then you can do whatever you want. I was like, no, because in five years time, I'm going to be caught in the rat race. I probably would have rented a house more than, you know, at the edge of what I can afford. And I would have bought a car at the edge of one afford just to make myself feel worth something in this, job i hate so i was really really miserable by the end of that and completely lost didn't have any idea what i wanted to do um i remember making a sheet uh, i told them when i was leaving that i was going to the marines which i had considered but by the time i left i knew i wasn't going to do but i knew if i said that they wouldn't be able to convince me otherwise by offering me more money because i had quite a lot of responsibility there by the time i left i was overseeing the mayor's um i can't remember what it's called now you know the mayor's like little uh, I can't remember what it's called. The mayor's building, basically. But I was overseeing. Is that the Lord Man? Uh, the London? Yeah, I don't think it's the Gherkin. It's the other one that looks a bit like that. But it was. Um, it, I was overseeing like the air conditioning fit out for this the mayor's building at that. Yeah. I never building it, or whatever. Um, and 
and I, you know, I was 18, but they'd given me more and more responsibility because I wasn't engaged. And ultimately I just did, I hated it. So, um, so, but that, it, it scared the life out of me, I think. So when I came out, you know, I wandered around lost for probably another year. Didn't know what I wanted to do. Did every job under the sun, laboring, security guard, uh, laboring of every single sort as well. Like, you know, um, and then I, I think I started this um night course to become a fitness instructor and i had to cycle seven miles there and seven miles back <laughs> to do it and um, but that, that was my first thing i think i'd take active i'd taken like active action towards something that i wanted to do and then and you know and i was interested in it and 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 i learned and i think that was that was the switch when i was like okay right this is i like this i'm interested in this and i'm engaged and then i just found this um this this fuel to want to learn and learn and consume as much as I could about all this stuff I was interested in. Like you said, following your interest, that's just expanded out over time. And you never know where you're going to end up. You know, um, I think it's, it's very tough what they do with kids, you know, where they're sort of trying to shape their career almost at GCSEs because you do options and then sort of finalise into um, A-levels, specialise highly at a degree. Mm. And like, you know, I'm I'm 42 now. Like I'm I'm nowhere near any of those decisions that I was making back then. I've never been happier, and I still feel like I'm I've got a lot more change left in me. Yet I'm nowhere near what I'm probably going to end up doing full time. Yeah. And so I th- there's a couple of things there. One is I think you have to do what you don't really don't want to do to know what you do want to do, yeah. and you have to spend some time doing some some really bad. Uh, there was a guy. Um, Casey Nice, that is a, a filmmaker on YouTube. I used to watch some of his stuff, and, and he had a real dead end job washing pots. And he just gave him loads of time to think about what it was he was going to do and what he did want to do. And he sort of formulated that plan then, and sort of followed it through. And you see where he is now. So, what, what uh, have you got any thoughts? Because it's something I often think about. A lot of people of about our age. I mean, you're quite a lot younger than me, but sort of around about our age, that there was no SNC. Really, I think UKCA was the UK Strength and Conditioning Association was formed in 2005, and didn't really sort of build up any momentum until sort of 2010, and so there wasn't much SNC about. And so most of the people that are reasonably senior in the in in the industry now have had a totally random. No one has had more of a random career than you. I'd <laughs> say so you've got the most wired experience, but. What, what do you think, you know, because you draw on a, exactly what we were talking about with the movement variability is that if you give someone a, a variable environment to learn in, it equips them with the tools to be variable in their application of them later on. Yeah. And so you've had a very ra- variable and random and chaotic sort of path to where you're going to now. And, and when you find yourself in random chaotic situations in the sevens, when you're halfway across the world and the gym that you'd booked um, has been cancelled and you've got 25 players that you need to do some training with you know it sort of equips you to be able to deal with that what sort of things do you think about a lot of the kids that are coming through now that are sort of go to school do their a levels straight into a c degree straight out into a master's in order to get a job do you, do you have yeah. any sort of thoughts on well i think it's mad really like i mean fair play if you do if you're 18 and you know what you want to do and you, you know you're clear on that that's brilliant uh, and there's obviously people who are they are get clear very very young and, and we, we probably deal with them quite a lot of as, as with athletes you know you know, there's a lot of athletes who decide, right, I want to be um, a professional rugby player and I'm going to do everything it takes to get there. And um, 
and that, I think you know, I sort of admire it because I was not that person. Like, I had no idea. I did not have the discipline to be able to. I remember when I was boxing and I was I was working in that job, uh, quantities babe, and the boxing was on three times a week. And uh, the rule was if you wanted to fight, you had to train three times a week. So I got carded. I did some like gym shows, which aren't like proper fights, but you're fighting in front of a, an audience. And then they wouldn't put me out for my first fight because they was like, you're not coming consistently three times a week. I was like, yeah, but I'm better than that guy over there. He's <laughs> fighting and I'm beating him up in three. And they're like, no, no, you know, you're not doing it. And that was wrong. He's like, at the time, I, I was nowhere near disciplined or under, like mature enough to understand that I just should just do that. If that's what I want to do, I should just do that. But I was, you know, it would get to the Friday night session, which is the, the one that, <laughs> the testing one, and I'd go out and race and get pissed. and. <laughs> Uh, you know, like you probably get into street fights and stupid stuff like that. So like, um, that was, you know, that I just wasn't that person. I didn't have that clarity and I had no idea. And I'm still probably not that clear on exactly what it is I want to become now. I know the things I like and I'm, I'm more comfortable now. I think like you were saying then, you're like you get to a point where you're just comfortable knowing that you don't know. And, but yeah, yeah, you enjoy, you either enjoy where you are or you don't. And if you don't, you're sort of going to change it. And so I think the, I think the, far too much pressure for kids to know what they're going to do i i remember feeling that pressure a lot like from my mum my and dad and my dad left um, school joined the navy at 16 he was in the navy for 12 years before mm. he left and then we moved to london but um you know so he'd, he'd always work so that was sort of his expectation is like well you just do this and you just work and um like i didn't start university till i was 21 mm. and but when I got to the university at 21, I, and like I say, I had that fear behind me of like, if you don't succeed in this, you could be going back to that job you hate, you know, a, sort of a life of meaninglessness is what I really uh, was scared of. And, um, but then I also had the thing I was aiming for. I was like, oh, you know, I want to be an S&C coach. I, I'm, I'm really interested in this, uh, and that's what I want to do. So, and I knew I had to come out of the first, and I, like, in order to give myself the best chance of competing in the in a very competitive industry. Um, if I was 18, I would, you know, there was a few 18, there was quite a few 18 year olds on the course. There was also quite a few mature students actually on that course. But um, if I was 18, there's no way I would have that. But, you know, like I say, when I was 18, I was still running around getting into street fights. Really. <laughs> yeah. Probably not quite 18, but I'd not long stopped doing that at yeah. that age. And the rest of my time before that was that, like getting into trouble, getting in, in, in everywhere I sort of could, could really. Um, so I just think kids need to be, and I don't know how you structure that in a society exactly. Yeah. Um, obviously like more wealthier kids get that opportunity because they get given the opportunity to do gap years and stuff like that and um i suppose you don't you don't have to have a lot of money in order to do that but like my mom and dad they wouldn't be like oh like right okay, okay like, <laughs> can i live here for free while i go and uh, save up a load of money they'd be like no no way like that was yeah. paying rent. as soon as i left school i was paying rent because they like, wanted to make a point that you know if you're not studying you're you're living and you're paying and um yeah, so I moved out at, um, I think, 18, just, yeah, I would have been just under eight, just at the end, coming to the end of 18 when I moved out, and yeah. and, and I'm glad I did, but it's probably been harder in, in terms of getting money but to get by as compared to a lot of people of my age, I think. Uh, yeah, I just think it's interesting that, you know, you have such a broad range of experiences, and I certainly think I put myself in your position. If I was trying to do physics at 18, just having left school and there's just, it just wouldn't have happened. I wouldn't have lasted. Well, I would have been, by the time I'd done that, I was 20. So I'd done, um, so from between, from, so from 17 to 20, I was basically working 
like either laboring for floor layers, carpenters, electricians. Uh, I was doing security guard work. Um, there's probably a few other jobs in there that I can't think of. You know, but I was, I was co- some coaching. I was coaching like at rugby bugs, like the rugby tops type things, so like two to five year old. So, um, and then, and I was studying two days a week um, between the age of nineteen and twenty at Kensington and Chelsea College, which was an access to sports science course. Um, and then um, from there, that's why I ended up going to Loughborough. And I was, so I was 20 by the time I got to Loughborough. And I remember um, it, it was a fascinating experience, actually. I was listening to Ricky Gervais and Russell Brand um, mm. the other day. And uh, Ricky Gervais was talking about his first experience of um, university and how it's probably the first time he ever met a posh person. And I think it was probably the same for me. Like, yeah. you know, like it wasn't. Is like you know, like Essex just isn't like that. So yeah. me and uh, Tony both went to Loughborough, and it, we used to have conversations like, hey, "This is nothing. This is nothing. These people aren't like us." <laughs> and uh, but no, like you know, I'm so lucky now. I feel really, really lucky to have been exposed to such a broad range of people through my life, and um, and through personal training as well. I love personal training just for the variety of people you meet. And, and how much there is to learn from everyone. And I think I've sort of learned that just from being around a lot of different people in a lot of different situations. It's interesting because they're exactly the same as Russell Kane. And Russell Kane came from a very rough area and no one read anything. <laughs> they didn't even read the newspaper. Yeah. And, you know, and he, he talks about sort of being 21, working in an office and just meeting some posh people and then realising that they were genuinely sitting on the floor reading a book. It was quite interesting. <laughs> and, and it sort of blew his mind. But, but you look at him now and the library that he's got and the depth of knowledge that he's got and where it sort of spurred him on to, to go to and what he wanted to achieve. Well, and it'd be good to actually get onto comedians because we've, we've talked a lot about that, but yeah, yeah. how intelligent they are. Anyone who reaches like that level of comedy, I've not ever come across one of them. That's not ridiculously intelligent. When you look into the background and actually they have like maybe more serious conversations, like, you're like Jesus, like you really understand the world. Um, Cause it has to be, yeah. it has to be that way for it to be funny, doesn't it? Yeah. If, if, it's, if it's not true, if it doesn't absolutely hit the nail on the head, yeah. then their, their, their view on it is not funny. I think it's a masterful, that's an art, a masterful art to be able to then take something real and wrap it up in something funny so that everyone connects with it. And it's, I think it's a masterful art. But um, but yeah, I think I was very lucky that my mum and dad read a lot. Like, there was books around the house, so they did read a lot. Neither of them went to university. They, went, they both did university courses later on. And actually my dad would always be doing like different, um he never really like was quite satisfied with his job so that was definitely a model for me of something i was working against as well I was like well i don't want to be in that situation because you don't like your job why are you doing it sort of thing but um you know he'd always be like doing this little sort of like midlife crisis things we'd be learning guitar we'd be learning golf we'd be learning something so and he, actually one of the things he introduced me to i just remember then when i was about 18 was anthony robbins and that was probably a massive uh fuel to me in terms of that learning um stuff you know and everything that promotes in terms of writing down your goals and so on and so on and so i was really lucky that my mum and dad were like quite curious individuals and probably passed a lot of that on to me mm-hmm. um, so even though like when we like buckstall is not a rough area is it but it's 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 next to rough areas and we mm-hmm. certainly i think i'm very lucky based on my temperament when i was young that i wasn't in a really rough area because i certainly came into contact with um, plenty of people from rough areas but the fact i wasn't embedded in one meant that i probably got away with being the way i was um, so like you know we'd get kids from Leytonstone, Walthamstow, East London come down and you know try and start trouble with us and we'd occasionally go in there to try and start trouble with them but <laughs> you know, it, it, it's very different being in an area where you can still walk outside your house and you're probably not going to get into any yeah. 
yeah, yeah. In one way, you are going to get in serious trouble. So it's really funny because this is exactly what I wanted the conversation to be. Just some sort of random tangents. Let's see where, let's see where this going. I hadn't actually thought about talking about the comedian thing, but I want to read you a quote because you reminded me of a quote and I looked it up and I found a better quote (laughs) and I'm going to read it to you. And then I want you to talk about this because this has been a big part of your career and doing things that other people wouldn't even dream of trying to do because of like simple logistics. You tell me like, yeah, I'm just going off to America for six months. I was like, what? How are you going to do that? So I'll just read it to you. It's Stuart Lee. Some things in life are worth doing. They're not just about status. The question isn't how can you become really rich? It was just how can you afford to do it? And when it was boiled down to that, weirdly it took care of itself, a bit like in Groundhog Day when he gives up. That's when he's allowed to wake up. When he stops trying to solve the problem, the problem goes away. Yeah. And so what that sort of sparked in me is, you know, like you've been out to DeFranco's in America and you have uh, you went off and did your uh, wrestling stuff, all these things that were sort of following your passion. And it's like, that's worth doing. That's interesting. Yeah. So in totally in the spotlight, like some of the things, you know, like you were saying, moving house, Kate starting a medical degree, you've got a kid, one on the way, and yet you jack in your job and uh, go off and work somewhere else. Or, you know, like what's what's your sort of thought process around that you know because you might look at it and think christ i'm lucky to be here i need to hold on to this with all all i can but you, you you've never sort of felt like that have you no and i think um yeah i've probably forgot a bit about that of how much i've actually done that actually until you reminded me there but i've spent thousands and thousands and thousands <laughs> of money i didn't have on yeah. going to the francos and going um uh, over to California, another one I went, and you know, just so I could go and see um, Juggernaut and Chad Wesley Smith when he was there. But um, so we should just explain to people who don't know, just very briefly. So like Juggernaut was a gym over in California, and I was I was there on holiday with family, but I rented the shittest car I could possibly find. I wasn't sure I could even um, it would even you know survive the day. <laughs> <laughs> and from a very dodgy place, I thought we we're going to scream over for money, and uh, you know, before you had Google Maps, I'm driving down like. This. <laughs> LA highways with a piece of paper on my hand and directions written on uh, to go and find this gym where and the main reason I wanted to go to the gym because there was a guy called James Smith who was uh, known as the thinker and he was like you know one of the people I'd sort of developed reading about and he was based at this gym so um, you know I spent um, you know the money I didn't have in order just to be able to do that and that was that was one of the more simple ones um, so like you say yeah, I went over to uh, to New York for just over a month and um to go and, and again i paid to go and train defranco's was one of the uh, sites that you'd recommended me to and he was very popular at the time in terms of online um uh training and you know he was he was a very probably a massive part in terms of snc growing actually because that culture of like garage gyms and, and hardcore gyms was he was very much at the forefront of us and, and um and so training pro athletes on you know as a outsider you know he was trying yeah. to athletes, wasn't he so yeah exactly and then so instead of like messaging him and being like oh can i come and watch your training like i was like can i how much is it to pay to come and train as an athlete and it was you know it wasn't massively expensive um per session but obviously i did a whole month of it six sessions a week um and i was lucky my uncle actually lived in new jersey so uh, it wasn't that close it was an hour and a half journey i think maybe even two hours journey from my uncle's house um to DeFranco's, even though they were both in New Jersey. Um, it was a long, you had to go into the city and out. But um, 
and but again like a massive formative time for me because i'd be spending all this time just on a on a train thinking and, you know it was before you had like you take it so much for granted now that when i go to countries like with sevens and we travel and you've got your phone there on the trains and i didn't have that i literally just had some books I had a book in my pocket and uh and uh and the train ride a long train ride so it's such a they had that time and space to think um, and I was getting exposed to all these new stuff. So I did that at DeFranco's. Um, at the same time, when I was over DeFranco's, I messaged a guy called Martin Rooney, who's another top trainer. And I said, look, I'm over here training DeFranco's. Uh, my day, my training day off is Wednesday. So can I come and, uh, you know, you know, visit you on, on the Wednesdays? And he was like, well, yeah, I actually train a load of UFC and athletes and wrestlers, wrestlers then. So if you want to come and train with us, you can. So, which was my, really my rest day. <laughs> um, I was going and absolutely destroying myself with these UFC athletes and, um, and all these college, college wrestlers and, and Martin Rooney. And, uh, so, yeah, but the, the point wasn't, you know, I went and I did develop as an athlete massively in that short period. because I was training so much, but, um, uh, the point wasn't that the point was to learn. So I was like, well, I don't care about my body. <laughs> I'm going to, you know, this is the best way for me to like get access to these people and learn. So, you know, and, um, and, uh, and and I learned so much in a, in a month. But then I've also um, spent again money I didn't have. Um, this is this is a, a probably key part of me. The end of that year where I, I crashed and burned was um, oh maybe it, was a, it was a year before. Oh, this was a year before that year actually. So we got married. Me and Kate got married. Uh, went to Jamaica on our honeymoon, which we you know we put on credit card. We didn't have any money, so we put it on credit cards. That's what we wanted to do. It was very much like, we'll do what we want to do because we want to do it, and we'll figure out the problems after, um, which is not – I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> um, and then also, I wanted the, this thing came out with a guy called Carlo Buzichelli, who's one of the top S&C coaches in the world, and he was working with the Cuban athletics team, and he put out this internship opportunity, which was you had to pay, and you know part of that was to cover the cost of living over there, and then I had to buy flights. So I spent – you know. Like, probably three grand in total on that trip um to go over to cuba and train with the cuban athletics team but as, as, as i looked at it i was like this is that is a incredibly rare opportunity that i will never get an insight to that ever unless i do this and it was amazing so i went and trained as an athlete with the um cuban athletics team uh well, i went with carla because he was like do you want to join in and train with them i was like yeah why not and that was pretty embarrassing because you know i'd be doing um sort of 200 meter sprints with uh the Cuban, uh, I trained with the women's team and they, 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 they fly off. I'd be nowhere near anyone. I was, I'm not a good athlete by any means. So, uh, but it was the best way to learn. So I think that's one of the other things. And I think SNC is a really good, um, uh, sort of, uh, the community of SNC are very much focused on learning and development. And you mm. can see it at the moment with all the Zooms and the, and the you know, the, all these webinars and people are lapping them up. And I think that's a brilliant thing about SNC that probably is same in 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 every industry i'm sure there's a lot of other industries that are but i do like that about ssc um and i think i i I don't know i think young coaches coming through are still very aware of that i'm not sure if they'd probably be willing to spend that as much as i probably did and i'm not sure i'd recommend it but i do know a lot that are willing to pay and learn and, and and so on so um yeah definitely like you say i was i would seek out it wasn't about but not, not, I'm not driven by money. It's funny. I think I was so driven by money as a young, like kid, that ending up in that job, I've actually had to reorganize my relationship with money and how I think about it. Probably because I, 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 start, I tied it up with everything that was like dirty and wrong about the world, mm. um, and you know, seeing the quantities of fame because it was put across to me as like, well, just do this and you get a load of money, and that's how my sort of dad explained it to me. I was like, well, um, 
I don't I don't want a load of I want to actually that's not what I want if that's what money is then I don't want that mm. uh, so now I'm not driven by money I'm driven by obviously I want a comfortable life for my for me and my family and I want you know um, I want you know Kate's training to be a doctor which um, she has been for a while and but that that fuels me the idea of her succeeding in what she wants to achieve um, so I, I, I think one of the things I thought about when I first got into S&C and when I really got clear on that I, this is what I wanted to do um, was if you be the best you can be everything else will take care of itself and that's the sort of thing, mantra I kept in mind and which I've when I've stuck to things have gone well and when I say well they've been very difficult because of decisions I made like leaving wasps um when i uh, leo i had a baby during two weeks and uh, i left wasp with nothing to go to because i just decided it wasn't the right place for me to be anymore um and uh so but then i think when you when you've got a partner or when you've got a family it's like well you should if you want to be with them forever like you want them the same for them mm. um and but then you've got to give a little bit of your energy in order to helping them do that and this, this is balance balancing that so yeah, I'm, I'm not driven by money at all, and um, I, d- I do want to have a lot of money. I want to be comfortable because I hate feeling that um, I hate feeling like I'm uh, vulnerable to the world and, it, and its changes. That's definitely something that I'm conscious of. But I'm not driven by money in, in terms of just achieving it for the sake of it. Like you say. It's funny how you, exactly what you said that I, I was the most carefree person in the world, and I've got sort of very similar things. You know, I was in a career up in the city work, working away and. I just like, yeah, I'm just going to jack that, that in because if I don't do it now, I'll never do it. And and it's funny how you so you go off and do that. But then when you get married and then you have dependent people relying on you and dependent on you, it totally changes the way you think. But it still doesn't necessarily stop you selling everything you've got, moving out into the middle of nowhere, <laughs> spending two years the coldest you've ever been. But, you know, like I think if it's in you, yeah. when you're younger, you sort of explore that area and that, that, that risk-taking. Yeah. That's where I think the order and chaos stuff comes back in because it's really interesting to know, like if you just jack everything in and just jump in two foot, like when you're a young youngster, I mean, sometimes you get away with it and sometimes you won't. And if you don't, the consequences, they're they're not always great, but it's not going to be the end of you. But you know, when you're older, you have to make that decision now and again to do what's right. And I think as long as you understand that, that chaos, because this is conversations we had time and time again about what you were doing, what I was doing and, it's like that's a big decision and it could really hurt you but you're aware of that and you're going to take steps to mitigate that yeah and 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 that's where you get into your heuristics and principles and i think that we've had quite a few conversations around that and you really helped me to clarify my principles and one of my principles is to do the right thing and it's that's just it makes life so simple it's like what any decision you've got to do is you know just do the right thing and you know what the right thing is and you know what the wrong thing is and you just got to do the right thing so what what sort of principles are you working on well, yeah, i think i mean i remember you, i think you told me about that actually probably that conversation we had in gloucester it was yeah. Yeah. yeah i definitely would connect with that idea and and it ties in very much in that same like follow your interests and i think the key thing is that it's you have to be have that awareness of what it feels right to you like, does this feel good? Does this not feel good? I think that's so important. So, like, say, like that situation at Wasp, I was like, it just got. I've been thinking about it for months, uh, but I got to the point. Where I was like, this isn't, this isn't it. This isn't what I'm, I want. This isn't going to get me to where I want to be anymore. So, I need to make this jump now. And I think I do. I, I think when you're young, make those jumps as many as much as you can because 
Um, they're definitely a lot scarier to me now, the idea of making jumps. Yeah. But I also know I can do it because I've done it and it's in my habit. So it's a lot harder, I think, you know, what many people end up in is that they get stuck in a career till they're 30, 35. They've got a lot more responsibility, a lot more tied to them. So that it's very, very hard. Obviously, they can still make that jump, but it's, it's very much harder sort of to convince yourself of that because of your experience so far. And I think I was very aware of that when I was young in that, like I was saying, that my dad and quite a lot of people recommended me to like, just do that. So you've got a, basically a, a safety net. And um, it's probably Anthony Robbins, actually, I remember first things from 18 they talk about well sometimes you should actually remove your safety net so that you you're more likely to do it like the idea of burning the, the boats and all that so you know like yeah yeah so i think that's really important actually when um i had leo first child like that was a massive turning point probably in terms of fueling me to start the business so i think it's something i'd thought about i'd half done i'd probably failed at a couple in a couple of ways and then i was like no i'm gonna really try and make this work and and started you know you've got that responsibility and it's a big responsibility and i was mm-hmm. like right, I'm gonna, uh, that definitely probably fueled because i'm not a, i'm not a, i don't i feel like i'm a lazy person but i'm very very busy all the time and i don't feel like i like being busy but i'm I'm definitely in the habit of being busy and i think i've built that habit of being busy from that necessity to know that well if i don't work hard and if i don't do all this stuff then not only am i vulnerable now then my family might not have the opportunities I want them to have and, and that sort of thing. So, um, it's, it's really interesting to see what happens now because the coronavirus has totally, I mean, my favourite question is if we weren't already doing it this way, is this the way we'd start? And there's so many things in society or your life or whatever that, that you definitely wouldn't, but it takes something catastrophic sometimes for you to really sit down and readdress because when things are sort of bubbling along all right, there are a lot of things that are broken. You can just, well, it's, we can just sort of carry on, muddle through, yeah. and and I think it, what's happened will will give an, an opportunity. I don't necessarily think it will change a hell of a lot. Potentially, maybe it will, but it gives a lot of opportunity to look at things. And I, I think there was a real cu- culture of busyness, yeah. you know. So being busy, and more importantly, being seen to be busy, yeah. And and I hate that. Yeah, and I, I think I'm guilty of it as well, and I hate yeah. it. You know when you catch yourself saying, "Oh, yeah, I've been really busy." I'm like, oh, "I'm so busy." It's an easy thing to say, and it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, Taleb talks about it in his book. He talks about um, uh, I can't remember off the top of my head who it was, but uh, was it um, Darwin who was a um, he was a rector or something like that? And so he was in a sleepy English village as the the rector or priest or whatever, and he basically had nothing to do. And so he was just sitting around, letting his mind play, following his interest, etc. And he sort of came up with that um, theory about uh, the evolution uh, and started to investigate that. And he had the time and the space to, to do it. And so here we go. This is something else we've talked about. So this is one of our favourites, Tommy Tin. And you've you've yeah. totally sent me off down a rabbit hole now. So this was not on the. We didn't have a script, but this isn't in the script that we didn't have. So. <laughs> So it's, uh, Tommy Tiernan, I was thinking about laziness and what a gift it is and how yeah. it should be encouraged in people and in children. A lot of the time it's our efforts that ruin us. It's when we try that we screw things up. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful, isn't it? I've definitely got that written down in a few times in a book somewhere. And so I think you've got to try and give yourself time and space. And and it's the other, it's Charles Bukowski about don't try hard. You know? yeah. My favourite quote, I tell all the players, that's my favourite quote. Not go on, get it. I, I can't remember it. No, no, it's my fault. Yes, it. Don't try. 
don't try. Yeah. <laughs> I, I thought I was going to get it wrong, but yeah, don't try. So, so in in that respect, I, I think it's quite interesting that you always made time to. I mean, like we, if I used to talk to you, you'd whip all of a sudden whip out your notebook, and I'd be like, Jesus Christ, and you'd be like, Oh yeah, I was I was reading this book, and I've made these notes, and this is my thoughts about it. And so yeah. that's interesting that you've always had that that kind of point of view to give yourself a bit of time and space to reflect. And I think what I've noticed you do is that you ask really key questions. So what you were talking about earlier in terms of the sevens is like, what are the key, you know, how often do we say, what, what is the key to being the best English, oh, sorry, the best world sevens player? Yeah. And how do we do that? What does the hierarchy look like? And you'll just sit around and play around with it. Yeah. And, and, and here we go. This is Graham Linehan. You draft and redraft until all the connections happen and the script talks to itself. So he was talking about how boring it is and how hard it is to start writing a script. Yeah. You draft and redraft until all the connections happen and the script talks to itself. Then the real thing happens and suddenly it becomes simple and everything that went before is so complicated and boring and beside the point. Yeah. And, and then you coalesce into that. And that's what I sort of noticed that you do. So is that something you've always done or is that sort of came out of that time when you started to read, started to find uh yes i don't know really i probably have i've always been i never would have written like notebooks ever like like i say in in school i was too busy living to worry about thinking you know like, mm. I was, like and and maybe that's the answer you know and, and I'm, I'm in this chaos like almost like self-imposed complexity now um and the end point will not be this the end point will not be the thinking but you know the one of the stories um Zen stories I, I talk about a little bit is um, the uh, I think we've definitely spoke about this about before I learned Zen uh, mountains were mountains and and water was water and and then as I started to learn and, and understand more uh, mountains were no longer mountains and water was no longer water and then on really understanding Zen and becoming enlightened mountains were mountains and water was water and uh, I've had conversations with uh, coaches before about this process we go through from simplicity to complexity and back to simplicity. Um, which I think you'll, you know, that is that mastery in its um, expression is simple, but you can't skip from the beginner simple to the master simple. You have to go through this journey of complexity. So um, I, I feel like, so I, I talked to the players a little bit about that. That don't try mm. this quote. Don't try. And I remember, and it was like Tommy Tiernan is. is is like a spiritual guide to me. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. like a lot of comedians are. You know, I'm, I'm hugely influenced by comedians and the way they think. And and Tommy Tiernan is incredibly philosophical. Um, you know, and reflective, aren't they? They're very reflective. reflective. Yeah, and he's very implicit his philosophy. But it's very, you know, his philosophy is very much around like that. You know, like talking about the, looking at that opposite side to life, the laziness, the slowness, the why are we rushing mm. around? Why, and um, and in, within his jokes, there's that message a lot. So and and that. Um, where he talks about that don't try was in that Irishman Abroad podcast that um, oh, yeah. you you showed me. You, yeah, you, yeah. So I think we'd we'd talked about Tommy Tin and um, we'd said about him, and then you was like, oh yeah, listen to this thing from him, and and he talked about Bukowski, and and again like that's one of those examples where he had a longer conversation, and you below you know it's been, it's not it's not a comedy stand up, it's just a conversation. You realize how intelligent and how broadly read he is, and and, and he talks about Bukowski and. Um, I just love that idea of don't try. It just makes so much sense to me because I was a perpetual trier in everything I did, <laughs> you know, and um, and am and am still. But I just recognise that when I'm things go well, you know, I've not necessarily tried, and I think a lot of people will 
we'll talk about that. Um, but so the, the talk about the, I say that to players because it shocks them, and especially in the world of performance sport where the whole thing's about trying and effort and earn get there and it's like uh and and actually in and it's best these notes don't try because you go into the arena and you've got all these thoughts and things that you're going to do and stuff you need to think about and that is taking you away from the moment and you know that going back to our philosophy about well the player only exists in the moment is like our aim is to make them to help them be as uh present in that moment as possible everything we've done before that is done that's either going to have a positive effect or negative effect we can't decide that but we want them to be in that moment as present as possible. And um, I've been watching The Last Dance and, and bought uh, Phil Jackson's book, so I've been interested in for a while, but not actually you know, read up on, and that was a reminder. And it's so refreshing to hear his language because he's obviously quite Zen influenced, so it ties in with some of the ideas I've had anyway. But him talking about the moment and keeping the players in the moment, I'm like, this, this, you know, this worked. And, the, and we're probably the most successful team ever this worked and then one of the most successful coaches uh, so it's really like it's it's very validating and, and and sort of i enjoy the idea that it can work because i think i've had this almost like not what not passive pacifist but um, a more passive idea of what performance can be about mm. play about um, being in a moment and not about this hard like almost like macho um competitive type idea idea optic as well where you're yeah and through the steps you're one yeah. then two then three then four and yeah, last well, lot like i feel like a lot of my sport my philosophy and my approach to sport has been noticing that it's too much over this one side and essentially the philosophy of rite is trying to balance that out with recognizing the other side but um i've got a whole different idea of what competition is now because of um this idea of don't try and then the other story i tell the players so i talk about don't try and they're obviously quite confused like well i thought i'm supposed to try it's like well um not 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 in the, the moment that you need to perform you, it shouldn't be like a try but then the, the story i also tell is you know him catch me if you can have you seen that with yeah Ray? brilliant yeah and he tells um, his dad tells him that story about the mouse so i'll tell him don't try and then i'll tell him that story that he tells about the mice there's two mice that fall into a bucket of uh, cream and one of them accepts his fate and drowns and the other one uh, struggles and struggles and struggles and churns the cream into butter and climbs out and it's um that's my that's one of my favorite stories and 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 i remember going through this process of like i really like this story but i really like this quote and they don't seem aligned yeah. at all so i just sat and thought for a few weeks about why are they aligned and i came to the sort of understanding that well it was in that the mouse that drowned and just accepted his fate it was in his nature to drown and accept his fate and the mouse that struggled and tried it was in his nature to struggle and try so i think the main outcome is like like to not question your own nature and actually yeah. listen to that and go with that and that's where the don't try is like don't if you're a trier like if you feel like you need to be very detailed and break stuff down that's fine that's that's your gig that's you but you know in the moment that you're trying to express yourself you certainly don't want to be thinking about all those details um, i think from a coaching perspective that's really interesting because that's something i've been thinking about lately is when i first started coaching i copied a lot of other coaches and it it wasn't me talking it was a really influential coach so i'd be standing there and i'd be talking but it, it actually was something. It was that influential coach that was talking. I was just imitating them. And it's what kids do. So they see, that's how they learn to walk. And then gradually, as you coach, you start to develop your own voice. You start to develop your own thoughts and your way of doing things. And I think some people never snap out of that, and they just carry on being that coach that 
that they were coached by, and that can be a self-fulfilling prophecy down through. It's very comfortable, and you see a lot of it, don't you? In, yeah. Twitter, like, you see these conversations and these arguments come up, and I feel I always find it interesting, like how fixed people are on an idea, and I'm like, huh. I mean, as a practitioner, it doesn't really matter, does it? Like, it doesn't really matter if you agree with my idea or not, because I think this works, and I've seen it succeed, and um, no, and I like it's good to bounce ideas off people and have those discussions, but ultimately. I don't need to be proven right in a conversation or discussion because my, yeah. you know, my career is not built off being right as such. In in that sense, in that explanatory way, the right, the right would be whether the athlete progresses or performs or succeeds. That's that's what sort of validates the idea or not. Um, so, and that's and that's something else that Jordan Peterson talks about is don't lie. Yeah, and a lot of times people lie by saying things they don't really believe in. And they're just saying it because someone influential said to them. And you can see that a lot in a lot of different places. And, and when you do that, so I was talking to Paul Hodgson and he was saying, you know, a team with absolute belief, but an eight, eight out of 10 game plan can beat a team with not much belief, but a nine out of 10 game plan. So they're technically very good, but they don't believe in what they're doing. And I've noticed that as a coach, when I've tried to do things, like that, it's because I didn't know any better. I didn't know that I didn't believe in it. I, I did it say some sort of methodology I'm like right okay we're going to do this we're going to use this tool for developing aerobic fitness something bugging me about it I don't really know what but I do it no this that's not for me I don't believe in it and so I didn't intend this to be a series of quotes but so therefore Carl Jung people don't have ideas ideas have people and so you know that's really interesting as well and I think that that's where that thing about don't try comes in because I think don't try, I'm sort of switching now, but back, back to don't try because I think the most interesting principles are the ones that really apply across so many situations. And I think obviously you talk about don't try as in being the moment, but, but you can bring that to an athlete and say, you know, like I think we should get into this, some of the, the speed stuff, but if you try and run as hard as you possibly can, you'll go nowhere. If you try and put as much effort into it and you could look at the skill acquisition side of uh, freezing degrees of freedom and you freeze up because you don't know how to control anything you've got so many options you have to freeze them down into very limited options and something um there's a, a goal kicking coach called Stuart lyric and he he's his cue is smoother not harder and i really love that i think it's yeah. and it applies to everything you do it's like when you're trying really hard in certain things you do you can actually ruin this Tommy Tin. You can ruin yourself. Your effort is 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 where we ruin ourselves. And so and so, let's let's sort of get into a little bit of speed because I, I think that's quite an interesting area. So you uh, you went off to work with Jonas. So just tell everyone a little bit about who Jonas is um, and what he does and what that that year was like and what sort of stuff you took from that from. Uh, yeah. Uh, Jonas is probably the top sprint coach in the country and, and, and probably got one of the top sprint teams in Europe in terms of uh, some of their su- collective successes. He, he coaches uh, Reese Prescott, who's, um, I think, going to World Championship finals um, and it was British champion um, last year, I think, or maybe the year and before. Jonas. This is one of Jonas's athletes. Um, Jonas Dodu is, is, the, is the full name, so just so people know who he is. Yeah, he works. Um, and uh, Daryl Nita as well is uh, part of the. I uh, think uh, they got gold. I can't. I'm not very well up to date with my stats and whatever. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, 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 yeah, they're very very successful. And um, it, Jonas comes from a sort of line of coaches, uh, which uh, through uh, Dan Path, who's one of the top sprint and athletics coaches in the world. 
Um, so I was aware of Dan Path from quite, uh, you know, as I got into S and C because James Smith and other people I, I'd read about would talk about Dan Path and I'd go in. And that's very much how I've, you know, negotiated my career and influences by going, right, this guy over here seems really, really smart. He reads this guy, right? So I'm going to read that guy. And then that guy over there says, this guy's really smart, right? So I'm going to read everything about that guy. So uh, Buddy Morris and James Smith would talk about, um, Charlie Francis and Dan Paff. So I'd read everything by Charlie Francis and anything I could find with Dan Paff. Um, and at some point I came across Jonas and I think it was probably through Twitter. I remember him putting up a video, this would be like years ago now, um, on YouTube um, of him coaching, I think in Denmark or something like that. And I was just, it was so ref- refreshing to see because all the stuff you see online of all these mental drills and ladders and all sorts of and you know and he just had these simple athletic drills that everyone knows like a skips or whatever but the way he coached them was so precise to the individual he was working with and it was the same drill um modified to suit that individual and i was like that's bloody brilliant so <laughs> i think i shared the video and, and said this is bloody brilliant and um this is a uh, why I love the internet because you can get this stuff for free and like, what an amazing sort of opportunity just to get insight into that. And then I think he messaged me just saying thank you for the share. And then I, you know, like, asked if I could go and visit, and he was very open to it. I don't think he had as many requests as he probably does now, so <laughs> I probably got in there early. And then, um, and then after I left Wasps, he put out. Um, well, it was a year after that because after I left the first team, I had a year working with the academy and, and doing some consulting and contact skills and all the other bits. But after that year, um, he uh, put out the, this internship opportunity with Speedworks. So I applied for it, and he was sort of, you know, very kind of what he said in that he was probably I was probably a bit more qualified than what he expected to apply because I I led a Premiership rugby program by that point, mm-hmm. uh, and. Uh, but for me, it was just an amazing opportunity because I want, I knew I wanted to go and get into athletics in some form because I wanted to understand pure output. So I thought if you can understand how to, you know, the pure speedsters, how to make them quicker or pure jumpers, how to make them jump further or throwers or whatever, you could take that understanding and it'd be easy comparatively to get the same responses from a team sport athlete. Um, so I thought I was going to have to go down to my local athletics club and on Tuesday or Thursday night or something like that. And that's what I was going to be doing for the next year. So when this opportunity came up, I was like, got in touch with him straight away. And um, like, fortunately, because I had a fair amount of experience already, he gave me a lot of responsibility early on. So I was, um, I would lead the gym program for the majority of the athletes there and, and, and given quite a lot of free reign to, you know, explore and, and do that. You know, we had amazing, amazing results um, in doing that. But uh, so, but it was for me. I my understanding of S and C and periodization had been and, and so on had been very influenced by speed and sprinters and and essentially like Charlie Francis. My, my, a lot of my model at the time that I was very much influenced by was was a lot from Charlie Francis amongst a few others who's a sprint coach. Um, so um, I like I had a conversation with Jonas before I started there, and he was saying like. Uh, you could see I had a very clear understanding of the of methodology and stuff, but I didn't have the experience of being like, close, close to working with that level of sprint athlete. Um, so he was like, you know, what you're going to pick up is how to develop your, your coaching eye in that sense. And, you know, some drills and stuff that we do that you might not know. And, but uh, it was just this amazing year of, uh, like I say, I was between a lot of different stuff and I would have loved to spend. Uh, so it got to two o'clock each day, which is 
mostly where the athletes went home but then uh, some of them would be staying around for like soft tissue work which at the start i intended to stick around and pick up the soft tissue work and learn from the soft tissue therapist as well but because i ended up doing so much that year i would you know that i'd basically leave at two o'clock i'd be flying across london to bisham abbey or twickenham or something to then work with someone else um so i wish i had more time than i did to actually spend with some of the, the practitioners there and, and, and sort of longer conversations with Jonas. But the wonderful thing about sprinting is that it's quite a slow way of life. So even though they're very fast, like it's the, the day is quite slow. So they start at eight and the athletes will sort of lead their own warm up sort of mobility type prep for maybe 30, 45 minutes. And then the warm up might be an hour and then the actual session might be 30 to 45 minutes. And then there's a bit of a break for lunch and then they do a gym session would be an hour to 90 minutes. Um, so it's quite spread out. And, you know, long recoveries between efforts. So there's a lot of time to discuss with the coaches who were there. And there was, there was Jonas and then the two coaches working, three coaches working at the time where, um, Mark Finley, um, who was a former British, uh, sprinter, uh, athlete and, um, and Laura, uh, Turner, who was also a former British sprinter and, uh, Marvin, um, who uh, was, um, had been working with Jonas from sort of the start. So I these other coaches around me, I could talk to and question and get their ideas on. Um, there was, um, other, other sprint coaches who would be basically Valley jumps coaches. So you just be able to have conversations with these people while you're looking at, we had 30 odd, um, you know, elite sprinters, basically elite to developing sprinters. But even the, so from the guys group, the development, the, the, most of them could run faster than 10.7 seconds. So, pretty much faster than almost anyone you'd ever get in team sports mm. so i you know I, I had ideas about how i'd categorize team sport athletes between like you know, speedy power dominant and more like strength aerobic dominant um and then these would be at the top all of them would be at the top of my speedy power group if they were in a rugby team in terms of their output abilities um but they were all fast so they're all fast but they're fast for completely different in completely different ways and then so it gave me just this opportunity for another level of detail for understanding how people move, how people solve uh, the movement problem, the force problem. How do they produce force? There was some that were quite muscular. There were some that were, didn't have a massive muscle mass. What's the difference between them? There were some that were very like uh, what we'd call pulley dominant or like hamstring and, and gluteal dominant. But then there were others that were a bit more quaddy dominant. And, you know, what, what did that um, afford them in terms of how did that help them move? How did it restrict them move? How did you need to balance that type of athlete out with another type of athlete? Um, so, and the, the thing I love about sprinting is um, you, it's all centered around trying to perfect uh, this movement basically, but completely for that individual. So there's not overall model that's going to work for everyone. There's principles that you're working to, uh, but you're trying to get it right for that individual. And then you've got this wonderful, objective output at the end of the hour they get faster or they don't get faster which is an amazing thing to test yourself by as a coach because you know if they get faster you can't really say it was down to you because it may or may not be um it, you know depending on how long you've worked with that individual you've probably got more and more influence on them but um if it's not that if they don't get faster it probably is your fault so you know you've got to try and solve that problem of and then you're just coming back did they get faster did they not get faster so um, I think with the developing group that I was programming for, we had like a really successful year in terms of them breaking PBs. And I was just a small part of that puzzle in terms of there was some great coaching from Laura, Mark and Jonas and, and Marvin. Um, but, you know, for me as an SSC coach running that side of the program, I was like, all oh, right, well, I didn't fuck that up. You know, I didn't 
restrict them from getting faster and that's that's nice feeling like you know <laughs> so and it was just this wonderful problem solving um process that i've really really enjoyed i'd love to go back into athletics and, and work more in athletics it's it's challenging from a, a financial perspective that until you're at the top end of it there's not loads and loads of money in, in athletics so it's when you've got like a family and, and sort of a, a certain requirement in terms of income it's hard now like we're saying it's hard now to jump to go back into that as much as i'd like to i think it's interesting because jonas has now been working with the england uh senior team isn't he yeah, which I think like, you know, I'm so happy for him. He's a great coach. He actually comes from a rugby background. Um, mm. So he, he wanted to get into, he was an SSC coach and, and sort of trained as that. And, um, but followed, uh, I think Dan Path was his uh, subject. He, he, he was his focus for his master's dissertation. So he went and, you know, lived with Dan for a few months and, and studied him and then was on the, um, uh, there, was a, there was a coach development program I think leading up to the 2012 Olympics that um, obviously Dan Path was leading British Athletics then. So Jonas was one of the coaches on that. Um, and then over that time, you know, transitioned into to being a, a sprint coach. But I think I'm so happy for him that he's doing as well as he is because he's an absolutely fantastic coach and thinker. And, and there's so much crap you see in, in the sports world of, you know, like especially in speed and agility and all sorts of the nonsense you see. And a lot of those guys, cause they shout the loudest and have the fanciest looking drills end up in working with teams when they, they shouldn't. Yeah. But Thomas is like genuinely one of the best speed coaches in the country. So, um, well, he is probably the best speed coach in the country. So him working at getting opportunities like to work at England, I think is the way the world should be. Yeah. Yeah. And then you look at the way that feeds into the game that Eddie Jones wants to play, you know, that higher tempo, real speed type game, you know, and that you can see, I mean, if you look at the way we talk about movement at the beginning, you look at the way that a lot of the, the players they've got now in the England team, the, the, just the speed at which they're running, even the guys that you wouldn't necessarily class as fast, you know, um, the, the sort of speeds they're able to hit and the positions they're able to get in to do what they do. And then speed the should be the foundation of, of rugby, like of team sports. So you spend your time running around the field. So you should be able to run around the field fast. Right? You should spend time doing that um, before you worry about what you do in the gym. And everything you do in the gym is important, but it just supports that. And one of the things that athletics really understands is how the gym starts to interfere with the speed once you get to a certain part of the season. So that's something I've played around myself with sevens and you know, and gone too far one way and then, and then, and then come back more to a more balanced approach. But... Um, again, what I've figured out from all that is it's very individual, and some individuals respond to heavy loading better than others, and ultimately it becomes very, very individual. And so, the other thing that you have spent a lot of time personally working on, which I think has created a really interesting sort of sidebar for you, was that you got into wrestling around about that time that you were at uni, and and I ended up in a, a big framework of contact skills. It was something you were sort of working on when you were at Wasps. So did you want to talk a little bit about how you got into the wrestling and what you sort of learned from that? I, I think there's a bit of a don't try in there <laughs> yeah, <laughs> about that too. So yeah, so that um, so that's when I first went over to America. So I went over to DeFranco's and, and spent that just over a month there in the summer after my first year of uni. Um, so and when I was there, that's when, like I said, I was started training at my. Well, there's probably maybe one or two wrestlers at Franco's, but I didn't really have much interaction with them. Um, there was uh, in, in my Rooney's place when I went there on the Wednesdays. Like I said, there was UFC fighters and there was college wrestlers in the group that I was training with, and I was just so impressed with how fit and strong they were. But 
you know, the build, like the, the, the shape of them. I was like, Jesus, like, I want to go and try wrestling. Like, I've never even heard of it really because it's not big in England at all in terms of Olympic wrestling. Um, so I, um, I, I basically, as soon as I came back to London, I f- looked for somewhere to go and found London Shoot Fighters, which is one of the top MMA uh, clubs in the country at the time. And, um, you know, it had, it was an amazing place to train. And again, I worked there, I worked there as sort of a, a sort of PT and uh, sort of fitness instructor while I was at uni. And at that time, um, so I think I started training there. So I would have started training there to start my second year of uni. And I was just training as much as I could. And after being there for a few months, spoke to the owner and said, I'm really interested. This is what I'm studying. This is what I'm working in. Is there any job opportunities? And, and there was. So that just meant I could be there even more and train even more. So I was wrestling five or six times a week, doing a bit of boxing around that. Um, and the wrestling group there, it was just brilliant. I've not, I've not found a group like it since, and it's not. The, they've moved gyms, and they're not in as big a gym, and I can't get down there anymore. Um, but they had the massive wrestling mat. There would be sometimes thirty guys there wrestling. Um, some of them you know, from one hundred and ten kilograms, or so maybe more, down to sixty odd, fifty five kilograms. So this amazing spread of uh, wrestlers, amazing spread of um, abilities. One of the guys used to, I think, he was third in the world at one point in Greco-Roman wrestling. Um, he was quite a lot older. He was on my first experience of wrestling. There was Mongolian like champion wrestlers, and um, so you'd get absolutely humbled all the time. But um, there was from a place to learn. I learned very quickly, and I competed quite early. After about six months, I had my first competition, um, and it was just so humbling. So I've you know been studying SNC. Everything was about strong strength and being strong. I'd been over to America training like non-stop like basically full-time training um so i was in the best shape of my life i was 100 odd kilograms i was um you know as strong as i'd ever been i show up to wrestling and i think the first session i went against one of these 60 kilogram mongolian guys and he's you know very quickly dumped me on my neck and uh, <laughs> right, right, uh, how much were you weighing then yeah so you know i realized that in that moment <laughs> And, and in a lot of moments after that in wrestling, that strength is only as important as being able to put it in the right place at the right time. So it had a massive effect on my philosophy of as an SNC coach and, and how I'll often talk about the unimportance of SNC. And it's not that I don't think it's important at all. It's just that when faced against skill, it, it doesn't really stand up. So uh, like I say, we're, we're trying to improve the potential for the individual to uh, perform in the moment and being stronger, being more powerful, being faster, um, definitely affords you more opportunities to solve that problem. But ultimately, you've got to have the skill and being able to place the right the right amount of strength in the right time, the right amount of force um, is key. So that, you know, there's so many practical lessons I learned from wrestling. And then the other thing that wrestling did was open doors for me as an intern. So Obviously, again, it, like I said, it's a massively competitive field, more so now maybe than before, but there's probably more opportunities now than there was then as well. Um, so when I was applying for roles, I applied for one at London Welsh. In, we were in the championship during my third year of uni. Um, and I was also lined up to go to Harlequins um, at the end of uni. Um, and the reason they were interested in me is because of wrestling, because I had wrestling on my CV and it was something that was becoming a point of interest in rugby at that stage. So I was next to all these other interns that just had an SNC degree or an SNC qualification, but I also had wrestling. So I had something of value to offer them. Um, and then when I was at Wasps, 
um, I was given the opportunity to develop that by uh, started off doing like wrestling type conditioning sessions. Um, but I quite quickly developed into much more of a broad system of what I now call contact skills, like the skill of the contact area through conversations with players and coaches. So we'd be doing a you know general wrestling conditioning session, which would have bits of wrestling in. Um, but then the you know player would be like, if you were in this situation on the pitch, what would you do? And then we'd just talk about it and play around and try different stuff. That uh, we had all these different sort of like uh, basically like. Um, skills that we built up from going right tackle this type of tackle that type of tackle this type of rock that type of rock and then it was solutions based on those situations you'd solve you'd, you'd, you'd face on a pitch and then how we'd solve them and would work back then from the skill itself the rugby skill itself back down to like some wrestling stuff that um, supports that and the foundation of all of it was very much safety because uh where wrestling had been uh popularizing rugby there'd be situations that i'd learned almost like secondary through stories of it happening to other people is um they're, they're done wrestling and then someone's blown out their acl or something like that um, and they also my own experience i was probably very lucky that i was i played rugby and i went to wrestling and that i didn't um that i didn't injure myself but i'd also spent my whole like from the age of about 10 till that point when I when I was with my mates, we'd, we'd fight each other and we'd wrestle. Basically, we didn't know what we were doing, but that's what we were doing. So, <laughs> and like I said, I'd fight a lot and I'd box. I, I probably had quite a good understanding of my body relative to a normal rugby player. But what you get with a lot of rugby players is that they're incredibly strong, they're incredibly powerful, but they don't understand their body. So they get in situations in a wrestling type scenario, and then they don't understand how to get out of that in, or how to go with it and they resist it and that's exactly what they don't need to be doing which is where they blow out acl so we had a lot of rugby players that came to our wrestling club who would blow out their acl in the first session because they were strong and they were competitive but they didn't know what to do with their body so i was very very conscious of that i didn't i was an intern i was like if, any, if i break no <laughs> so um everything i developed i was like right this has to be very low risk so there's a few rules that i would always stick to is that we never ever do full full on wrestling with a rugby team or rugby players where the, the aim is to go from your feet down to the floor mm-hmm. um, which is you know there's been more situations situations of england 15s where the, the they've had judo guys come in and teach judo and that's resulted in a similar thing it's like it's the same problem there the players don't understand how to use their bodies um so just I think, in, I think in the, just to, you don't necessarily understand that about the players. That's the problem as well by just chucking in a, a sports yeah. coach, a different sport. Yeah, and that's that's interesting because I did a little bit of judo when I was a kid, and my old man was massively into judo, and we uh, used a couple of judo guys um, for just some winter training at South End, and what they do is they just do the judo with you and I was like yeah but you can't do that because that's against the laws of the game and you know that's a really dodgy thing to do in a game because (laughs) it's like illegal and dangerous in a game to do that kind of thing but they're just doing the judo so people like yourself have been away immersed yourself in that environment and then come back and like problem solve exactly what you're saying right these are the kind of situations we find ourselves in so I'm interested just to get a little story out of that because a lot of contact skill stuff can be counterintuitive and there was a thing that you told me about um, the situation where if, if you're trying to if you're trying to hold someone up, something who's actually about sitting down to hold someone up, <laughs> it's, it's a bit counterintuitive. So do you want to just give, give people an example of that, basically? Yeah, it's where you place your body, and like the whole um, point of wrestling and any martial art is being 
smart with your body. So we talk about uh, Bruce Lee um, and be like water because water can crash and it can flow. And that's the principle of any martial arts. Understanding when you're and any stress, basically strategy, regardless of the discipline, war, rugby, whatever. Um, when you're in a position of strength, you need to understand how to cr- crash and apply force at the right point in the right amount at the right time. When you're not in a position of strength, you need to flow. You need to use skill and guile. And in, in the wrestling sense, that's about putting your body in the right way or moving your body out of the way and, and feeling the balance and feeling the, the other person's energy in a way. Um, so the trying to hold someone up, um, it, like you, you need there's, there's a, it's probably quite a complicated thing to explain because you know, there's certain grips you're using, how you're taking the space away. The general principle of, of wrestling um, is that when you're trying to attack someone in wrestling, when you're trying to control them, you're trying to take their space away. And when you're trying to defend against someone attacking you in wrestling, you're trying to create space for yourself. So in rugby sense, you flip that in terms of defense and attack because when you defend rugby, you're essentially the attacker from a contact wrestling type sense. And when you're attacking in rugby, you are the you defender. So when you're attacking in rugby, you're trying to create separation, create space for yourself in order to score. Um, and when you're defending in rugby, you're trying to take that space away um, and, and create connection with, with the person who's attacking against you. Um, so, yeah, like the, the, the way that you'd hold someone up is um, like uh, you, you're almost sitting them on your knee and then you, your base is the, the, the most important, um, the, your base is the most important thing because if you're trying to like, pick them up off the ground, you're not in a position of strength. You're actually in a position of vulnerability because you're off balance. Whereas if you can sink and sit and hold and, and get them in the, in the right sort of grip, you're, you're doing very little physical work and they can't go past you because your legs are there. So there's so much, there's so much subtlety to wrestling. It's a beautiful sport. And I was always amazed by like going to these like um, classes with the coach and him just, you think you knew this position and that you were completely strong there and it'd show you something and you'd be like, Oh my God, like, that's not, I'm not strong there at all. Um, and, and there's so much of that that can be applied to rugby and it's not really been applied yet. And I think uh, to be honest and not like, I don't mean anything like we'll blow my own trumpet, but I really do understand wrestling and I do understand rugby. And if I think if I wasn't as interested in the bigger picture of performance and mastery, I could have built a whole career by now just on, contact skills and i've had like the, like questions and demand for um to do seminars on this for a while and i've sort of intended to do it for probably six or seven years now and still not got around to it because i've been so busy doing other stuff but uh, it's busy busy word but the um <laughs> no but and it's something i i do i love i love this that side of it i love that problem solving i think i haven't gone down that route completely yet because i never wanted to be pigeonholed as oh that's the, the contact wrestling skills guy where i'm actually interested in performance in a much much broader uh, thing so i'm gonna have to find some i've got a lot of i suppose understanding of it and and i've got a whole system and a framework so at some point i'm gonna have to you know put it out there and 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 to share it really because it i think it needs to be out there i think rugby will take to another level when contact skills i've really understood and at the moment they're really really not understood like the basic way we teach rugby tackling is wrong like it's Mm. not that's not how you should be teaching rugby tackling. Like sitting on your knees and then having someone run at your shoulder while you wrap your ring of fire around their hips, whatever you call it, ring of steel, and slide down is not the way to, to tackle and how to tackle. And 
a double leg takedown in wrestling is the way to learn how to tackle because as a tackler then you're completely in control it's very very nuanced in terms of where you put your body and you immediately gain an understanding of weak points and strong points um so in terms of safety in rugby it's key and, and you know you can teach double leg my five-year-old i taught how to double leg takedown when he was three or two <laughs> um, you know and and where he should put his hand and you know and he just does it because he's just that's the way i've said like I've sort, of, sort of shown it to him and i think you could teach that to six-year-olds before they have to do full contact rugby they could spend three years just learning these basic wrestling skills so about the time they get to actually um the the contact uh, stage of rugby i'm not sure what the exact age is but they would be so good at understanding how their bodies work that they would be so much safer as a result because they understand their bodies in space and what you get now is that you get kids who are nine who are taught nothing about body control nothing about how to use their body in space and then they get people on it and they've just got to dive and close their eyes and hope for the best it's like that and then that's what our whole rugby um contact skill is built from now they don't know Rugby players won't get taught about properly contact skills, I imagine, even now till they maybe get to like an academy point and they maybe get some, you know, an input of like maybe some roles and some stuff like that. But most places aren't doing it. and it's, it's mad. Yeah, I think, you know, the earlier you learn those skills, the less damage you're going to do because they're very light little kids. And if you actually look at the way they rough and tumble anyway, you know, they're doing a lot of these things on their own anyway. And if you can get those... They get those skills in exactly what you were saying before, where you can get it into a controlled environment, get them to learn how to, to how their body moves, how the other person's body moves, and and get them working into that and, and practicing those things. So when they come into the chaos of a game, because there's a ball and there's other people running around and, and everything else, they've got some skills in there to be able to yeah. let them deal with that situation. And that, that was my first thought when I started wrestling when I was 21. Um, was uh, as soon as I did it and as soon as I got thrown around by someone half my size I was like oh, I wish I did this when I was six I'd be an absolute killer now like nothing <laughs> yeah. but it's just like um, it's, it's just uh, exactly it's, if you did it that young it'd be so ingrained that understanding is so ingrained because you're so um, sort of um, you're just like a sponge aren't you at that age your body's like a sponge in terms of learning how to move and um yeah, I, I love, I love, I've got a, a deep love for wrestling. I'd still do wrestling now. I don't have time really to train, but I love it. It's a wonderful sport. And even I've used it with football. So when I was working with Fulham Academy a little bit, I was, they was part of their multi-sport program that we were teaching wrestling, but I quickly recognized that they didn't want to wrestle as such. They were very excited about it in the first session, but ultimately what they wanted to do was play football. So it was all about then how do you take the principles of wrestling and apply them to football? So, you know, we built a bit of a framework around that and um but again that that balance between um some core movements some core abilities but then translating it into their their um, situation of how they have to control um defenders and keep people at bay and how do you manage body height and and, and balance and so again an amazing opportunity to learn it's it's funny because um my dad used to do judo my dad used to be in the police and he used to do judo and he he got me to do judo because he'd done it and I did that for quite a while when I was younger and, and his thing was you know if you know what you're doing with minimum effort you can just be chucking people around and one of the things is to use people's weight against them so if you want someone to come towards you you pull them away uh, sorry you push them away and if you push them away they're going to react and try and come towards you and then if you just pull them 
they're pushing so hard you you barely need to tap them and they'll go the other way and and conversely if if you want them to to go away from you pull them towards you they'll start pulling back give them a little tap and they're gone and uh, i was working with a football team semi-pro football team and uh, the, the winger was quite a short guy and he was getting kicked all over the pitch getting really badly he was very very quick so the defender was just getting stuck into him really being very physical so at half time I said to the I grabbed the kid and I said listen I was only just doing like a bit of S&C and a, a bit of sports sports massage I said look when we go when we go to goal kicks go and find that guy push and I, I just did it with him I was like push into me I go and find him back into him when we've got a goal kick and if you step forward and to the side he's going to take about four or five steps forward and you're just going to do him for pace so anyway he did that twice and the third time the guy got so hacked off he, he he sliced him up and got a red card and and like the, the winger came off and said oh mate that was amazing like i've never even thought about doing it. i said yeah you just got you, he was a big lump you're never going to beat him in a fight so you've got to be a little bit smarter but then the the, the manager was like like freaking out that i've been doing sort of like fighting or contact skills because i was seen as the rugby boy and and so it freaks people out to do that but it's, it's a real trick that can be missed well, i think the thing is like that bringing it back to that court just strategy i think all athletes should be masters of strategy at some point they're going to have to master strategy to get to a level of mastery and that strategy that crash flow strategy is completely consistent i've got a huge book on my shelf called strategy which i oh, must yeah. told about before yeah, yeah. Uh, it's massive it's too big to read the whole thing i don't think i'll ever read the whole thing yeah. uh, but uh i read the introduction and then because i'm i'm lazy i've, I've read the end and then <laughs> i get to the best bit i'll figure out the middle and then the introduction you know introduces these two broad strategies which you could basically um which would be force and guile or it'd be crash and flow in, in my language yeah. and and at the end it basically says well the, the ultimate strategy is to be able to use force when it's appropriate to use force and guile when it's appropriate to use guile so if you're whatever you are you need to be able to employ both of those strategies so as an athlete and as a rugby player or as a fighter or whatever you need to understand both of those strategies relative to yourself and your team versus other teams so when you're um, facing a team like it's part of what we do anyway what are their strengths what are their weaknesses how are we going to exploit their strengths how are we going to exploit their weaknesses um and you know uh, how are we going to deal with their strengths how are we going to exploit their weaknesses so um i think in, in in that contact skill sense but also a broader strategy sense is like understanding when you're facing someone what do they want you to do mm. as a player if i'm a fast player against a big player what does the big player want me to do okay what is he scared that i'm going to do okay, how can i make him really think i'm going to do that thing he's scared of so that he overcommits to it and then I can do something else which is probably an easier solution than doing the thing he's expecting. And you know, I, I really like this. And like I said, I'm always questioning up to find those broader principles. But once you've got them broader principles, I like that process of them working them back down into the applied sphere that you're working with. Um, and, and the stuff that I picked up from wrestling in a very practical way, like these strategies and, and stuff, I think apply absolutely everywhere. So that, that book is strategy strategy by Lawrence Friedman because because I've got that and I've I'm, yeah. I'm just looking on my book I'm thirty five percent of the way through so I've got a bit of a way to go on that. straight to the end. <laughs> two times two and a half percent. Well, you you've you've cut you cut to the good bit, haven't you? Got to the end. Yeah. Okay, so I think this, the final sort of thing I want to touch on because 
this is another question that I really like, and I sort of found myself in this situation again today, and I love doing this. Is like you're talking to an expert, you don't really understand what they're talking about. So you say, All right, so you're giving me these two options. I don't know what either of them really mean. What would you do if it was your dog that was ill and you've got these two options? Like, what are you going to do? Oh, well, I'll just do this. All right, okay, yeah, fine. I understand. Let's get. So you've got two kids, and we actually talked about it before Leo was born. And we were sort of saying you were t- talking because we were talking about skill acquisition. We were talking about gymnastics, wrestling, the sorts of things that that, that were going to happen. And uh, so I'm interested. You, you've got all this experience. You've done all these different things, and you've been in situations where you wouldn't necessarily want him to go into, but you you know the value of it. You know the, the chaos or whatever. You don't want it to be too ordered. So how are you going to approach that with them? What what sort of things are you thinking? in terms of your kids now yeah, them, so, in, in again, a, general, like, a general life sense and maybe a physical sense if you want to get specific about it yeah par- parenting has been a, one of like the best coaching education processes so far you could hope for like it's it's just watching them learn is is fascinating for mm. someone who's interested in that it's like you could watch them all day how they solve problems and and just how we're all of us are so wired to solve problems that's what we do like and you know some do it better than others but um watching them do that is amazing and i remember um I, I, when leo was uh so he just started to crawl and he could move around a bit and um i remember thinking again this goes back to that balance and order in chaos and it's sort of uh a, a, this is the, an example that i'd like to try and keep in mind in, in a sense as they grow up and i think it's hard hard and i think the 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 older they get, the more potential for trouble, you know, expands. Like, so when, in this scenario, when he just started crawling, you know, he could either fall off something or not fall off something. That's Mm. as bad as it really got. But as soon as they get older and there's your imagination and as parents is obviously worry all the different things that could go wrong and happen to them. And, um, and that's what you've almost got battle against in terms of maintain probably some, um, some, close level of reality to be able to allow them that space which i think i don't know i've not done that yet i've not got to that stage yet so i can't really say how i'm going to be at it and i, I sort of I'll, I'll come back to my own parents actually because i think that's quite interesting the um so leah would crawl around and I, I decided that well where i need to be as a parent is uh the right side of it so that we had a little step in the, the house we were in when um when he was at that age and it was one step and it fell down into the kitchen and the kitchen floor was reasonably hard but not very hard and you know i often find it funny how people would come around and like to visit us and they'd be so worried about him falling down the step and i'd be like like yeah, let him fall down the step and he did i let him fall down the step a few times probably which might sound a bit cruel but he never hurt himself like he cried sometimes but he never seriously he couldn't it was one step there's no possible way he could really hurt himself um but then other times, and people would obviously be careful on the stairs, but I noticed there was other situations where they wouldn't be as careful, and actually they were more, I thought, more dangerous. But yeah. uh, So, say if he was around the, the single step that went into the kitchen, I was like, you know, fall down a step. That's wonderful. That's great learning for you. Um, but then if he was going up the stairs, I'd obviously be following quite closely behind him because if he fell down the stairs, that would probably be the end of him. <laughs> or he'd, he'd be severely sort of damaged. And um, I... Uh, and I thought, well, that's probably the right balance to get as a parent. You know, you want them to solve, face those problems and, and make those mistakes to the point that it hurts them and they learn. Um, 
but not so much that you know it destroys them and they they can't come back. <laughs> and you know, and 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 that is a the you know the older they get and uh, the smarter he gets and and Mia now as well. Mia's free, so she's like you know following that same path of like they're bloody smart. By the time they're two, they've basically got you figured out. They understand how to operate within your boundary. Like, and that's what I think, again, fascinating how they learn. They, they see the world very simply, and they're just trying to figure out what the boundaries are. Like, what are the boundaries that I'm able to exist within here? Like this, okay, right, bam. So I'm going to play on this boundary, I'm going to play on that boundary, and then they just shift them out. So as a parent, they, they figure you out very, very quickly, and then you, you're sort of basically, you've got, you know, very. You, I'm learning the art of negotiation and losing all the things. <laughs> um, so... Uh, that's the that's, as they get older. I'm trying to figure out well, where's that balance now that I let them, uh, you know, solve them problems for themselves. And and I think a lot of ways, once they go to school, a lot of that's taken out of your hands because they are facing problems and you're not there. They've got to solve it. And I think what I hope is that I can facilitate conversations around it, and that and that's the support. That's the same, similar to a coach. I think there's a lot of crossover that when they're facing problems, you sort of. Yeah, you, they're aware that you're there with them to help them solve them problems if if you're needed. But the both of them have ended up so far being very, um, very tenacious and very much want to do it themselves. So I'm I'm not sure how we've ended up there. Whether that's me and Kate are both very like that, so it might just be the way they are. Mm. Uh, but yeah, just the way they 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 learn and, and stuff like that. One of the things, um, one of my experiments with Leo was uh, when. Uh, he was a baby. I remember speaking. There was a kid I used to train when I was um, when I was eighteen, and I used to do the uh, rugby tots coaching. And there was a kid who was five, and he was absolutely amazingly skillful for a five year old. He could spin past with both hands, and he could drop kick and all sorts of stuff. And I just say to his, uh, I used to talk to his dad, and his dad wasn't big into rugby. So the kid found his interest in rugby through an uncle, I think. Um, I was like, how do you, you get him so good? And he was like, oh, I don't know. But one thing we used to do is when he was a baby, we would roll balls to him. Um, and, you know, he couldn't, he wasn't old enough to be able to really respond to it, but we just roll balls to him. And I thought that was really interesting. It sort of made sense to me in terms of how I thought the body worked and how I thought we learned is that, you know, the environment exposes certain things to us. And that is a signal to the body to be like, right, you need to be aware of this. So I thought, well, when he's like um, two weeks old, um, or probably even younger I'd, i would just sit and it's good with a baby because it's engaging for them uh, so it keeps them quiet anyways i'd sit facing a wall with a ping pong ball and i'd just bounce the ping pong ball off the wall and i'd catch it so obviously he's two weeks old he can't do anything um and i'd and i'd do that uh you know fairly frequently because i've quite a fun little game with yourself and it's quite a good way to talk but you can see that as a baby they're paying attention to that um and they um they're following it in a way they're obviously not following it so but what i'm thinking the brain is getting this signal is like right there's something here that moves quickly and we need what is that we want to be able to figure that out yeah, yeah. And, um, and then i've not i've not really been like I'm, I'm you know like i'm work a lot so i've done little things like that with leo and i, I didn't really do that with mia but i've done little like little play things with mia as much but mia's definitely not got the coordination oh maybe she has actually it's hard because you're comparing her to five but she's different age yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's pretty coordinated for a three-year-old, and, and and he was pretty. Uh, she probably she might even be actually more coordinated than he was at three, to be honest. It's probably not a fair comparison because she's older. 
but he's like now he's he's very coordinated and i can like maybe i should have done more but i've not consistently done this sort of stuff with him it's not like he's been in some brutal training camp <laughs> <laughs> i think probably most people expected me to do but yeah. you know, as a, you just don't have the time and it's it's sad it's one of those things that, especially the way my life's been over the last few years i've worked so much and um so i've just had these little inputs of little you know every now and again we'll just play these little games and I make up little games and we do um like basically uh like baseball in the garden but we've got a random stick and i've been doing this with him the last few days <clears throat> a random stick and a random tennis ball and he can nail it as long as i throw it roughly near him which is more the challenge is that i don't do that he nails these tennis balls and he's, he's five like and i'm like jesus that that seems quite hard for me to do with quite a big stick and, I'm like, <laughs> and then he'll throw it to me and i'm worse at it than he is. <laughs> <laughs> i'm sort of thinking well he's hand eye you know he must have fairly decent hand-eye coordination i just wonder how much is that to do with that and, and you never know would you never no, know but, I, but you know these little things and you, and you just um it's wonderful i'll tell you another thing i've been like we play fight a lot and the play fight both me and leo and um it's always just been like really fun and there's never been any balls and you know just like i'd flip them over and, and all that sort of stuff and, and he loves that and and it's good fun but one of the thing i did a couple of weeks ago was like right new rule because it used to be like you're trying to push each other off the bed and obviously half the time i'm getting thrown off the bed um, and rolling off the bed but I was like right new rule you're not allowed to go on your back and if I get you on your back I win and that's it and then he, the the way he wrestled like he's wrestling like he's proper wrestling. I've never talked to him about wrestling I've never shown him a single thing but he's wrestling the way he flips and moves his body and cries you're like wow that is how we learn that is how you know and you talk about the constraints based model and, and that sort of um, little bits of how a little tiny um, rule can just change the way they solve that problem and it's like things like that you get little insights to as a parent that you wouldn't probably get otherwise um, and he's in the moment so what you were talking about earlier it's like he's not thinking about where he's putting his foot or his arm he's just thinking yeah i'm in the moment what have i got to do to yeah yeah and i don't know if he's going to wrestle and i don't know if he's going to play rugby and i don't really mind I, I, my sort of taking it as a parent is that well i want to encourage him and um and both me and leo to like we've got balls we'll have music we'll have you know books and i think you expose him to as much as you possibly can and then you um and then you hold the passion let him follow his interest so when they get there they've got some sort of ability in it and then that helps fuel that passion so but he's going to be a better wrestler than i am you know just because of how good he is now whether he wrestles again or not i think his basic understanding of his body and how it works in space and um and I'm, I imagine, like, even me and now, like, she gets involved in our fights and gets flipped over and, and all sorts. So, um, you know, they'll be the same. And it's just simple rules and simple exposures. And it is fascinating to learn, to watch them learn more than anything. And just to have it in a game, there's, there's a guy on um, Twitter, Stuart Owen, and his uh, handle is at Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T, Owen, S-D. And he does those sport diddy challenges with the kids. And so... You look at like some of his kids, I think he's got a little boy and a little girl, and they are literally in nappies, standing three metres away from a, a kid's basketball net, kicking a basketball into the net, like four out of four. <laughs> You're like sitting there going up. And yeah. there's, there's a really good one on the internet of a, a baby sitting, like again, in a, in a nappy, a baby sitting on a table tennis table with a table tennis bat, and the dad is there with a box of ping pong balls just knocking them over the net and the kids just hitting them back, just yeah. hitting them back. And it's, it's fascinating. You see them like what they can learn is incredible. It's amazing. 
Yeah, unless like I say, like, I probably don't do it enough with Leo and Mia because I'm I'm working a lot. But you realise when you do it, a little bit of that over this period, just doing that with a little bit more of you, like wow, this is they learn so quickly. <laughs> like um, we can do that. We've got like a little uh, tube thing that we've made into a that target. So you're trying to kick it into the target, or we've done a crossbar kicking game the other day, and he's nailing kicking at the crossbar. I'm like, well, I can't do that. Like, yeah. <laughs> The way they can organise their bodies is so quick compared to a, compared to adults. And it's interesting if you if you go to the skill acquisition material, and it's hard sometimes to get into that kind of thing, but it's worth doing because when you learn some of the principles of that, like for example, one of them is 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 simplification, not decomposition. And this goes back to what you were talking about in the tackling. Is there's a real drive and desire. I think it's like a, a, a robotic approach to coaching is right. What do they do in a tackle? Well, let's let's strip that down to its component parts and build them back up. And actually what, what the skill acquisition acquisition literature says is simplify the task, but keep it whole. So, you know, you just have them walking towards each other, but it's, that's still what they're doing in the game, but you're simplifying it because they're not running. Yeah. And there's a great story from, uh, Ian Renshaw is like a really big researcher in skill acquisition literature. And when his kid was, was a tiny little baby, uh, his, Ian Renshaw's cricket coach just said, look, if you want him to be a cricketer, just bowl at him. He said, J- even if you're doing it at the speed of a underarm delivery, always yeah. bowl overarm at him. So by the time this, this kid went to, to start playing cricket, like, Renshaw had him in the in the in the driveway, and the the garage door was four runs, the car was six runs, and whatever else. And and he would sort of just walk up and do an overarm action and give a relatively slow ball, and, and the kid would hit it back, and he'd be able to do whatever. And it, it got more and more as he got better. Ian Renshaw got faster and faster, and was putting some decent deliveries down to the kid. And when he went to his local cricket club, they were all learning by hitting the ball off of a tee. <laughs> so so the kid goes and he's like he's he cannot hit a ball off of a tee and the coach is sort of like looking at, at him and saying you know uh, have you been doing you said you've been doing cricket with him yeah yeah watch this and he set up a little set of stumps ran at him <laughs> 30, <laughs> stuck an in, in swinger and he just pulled it for four runs like like nothing not like it was he'd been doing it all day long and and that's now Matthew Renshaw who is very very uh, accomplished cricket plays for Australia plays for Queensland all the rest of it and that was the kind of thing that he was doing with him from a young age and so it is amazing what they can learn but it's also amazing as a coach if you get to understand some of these little aspects of it and when you understand all around the theory it can really influence what you do and prevent you from going wrong with what you do because it's great to play with your kid but if you do it in just slightly the right way keeping the skill whole things you wouldn't necessarily expect it's amazing what you can get well listen i've i've uh kept you a good length of time here i think we could probably stretch this out and keep going and keep going but it's been absolutely fascinating i've I always really enjoy talking to you and i hope i hope all the, the coaches out there uh, have taken something from us so um those who've managed to keep with us for two years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, we've enjoyed it. So, look, yeah, we're well, well, interest. yeah, I've enjoyed it. Been, yeah. <laughs> so, um, where can people uh, contact you? Where can people find out about Arite? What What's the what's the best? Uh, yeah, way? So, um, so, both on Twitter and um, and Instagram are probably the easiest. The um, I've got the website, the the, the company website. It's a bit of an overview of, of what we do. Is uh, just www 
www.arete, which is A-R-E-T-E hyphen performance.com. Uh, and then the companies on Twitter and Instagram, which I think the handle for both of them is the same. It's at Arete, A-R-E-T-E perform underscore HQ. And then um, I on Instagram, I think um, Tom Arete something. <laughs> if you yeah. search Tom, Tom Arete perform, I think it is. And um and then it's a retail Tom, retail underscore Tom on Twitter. Uh, but yeah, like I think you'd, you'd be able to find me. I think most of them have got the picture of my big bonds and <laughs> Google yeah. Tom, the Google Tom Farrow. Yeah, and um, yeah, like I love, you know, I love chatting. Like, like uh, enjoy these. Um, you know, I love connect. I love connecting ideas. I love connect. You know, when I hear stories from other, like out of the way. I think I, I place so much value in these conversations. One of the things I would recommend to like younger coaches is you know find people like in the same way we've had this like being able to t- chat with each other over time and just bounce ideas back and forward and and then you know be like oh, I had this. oh yeah like and, you know like, even that like let's talk about Ian Renshaw is in there oh that's really cool and then you know I'd go and look up that and then you might say oh have you seen this thing and the same with Tommy Tiernan and, and so much like so much of my philosophies and thoughts have grown out of just conversations and, and people pointing me into the into these sort of directions so i think i value conversation so much i value it for like um i think you know, jordan peterson talks a little bit about it about uh, the, the process of talking will refine your own thoughts and i've definitely found that when we've had these conversations that uh, this one's a bit more biased towards me because you're asking a question but uh, you know it does give you it give you a, a, a great question it do give you that um clarity and what you're thinking and, and what you feel so i think um I recommend you know to take get take three hours where you can and, and go and chat to people and really casually. I think it's very important. I think a lot of coaches who are passionate about what they do, they just love talking about it, and so they yeah. will sit and talk to you. I mean, the number of people that I have got in contact with now just through first having some conversations on Twitter and it's like, oh look can I pick your brain and can we have a chat about this have you seen this and then you end up having some fantastic conversations because they're so passionate about what they do they love it so much they'll just talk for that for you know, two, two hours 24 minutes <laughs> <laughs> I think like the coaching community is that and then it, I think it's so complex it's so like helping people to get better is so complex because there's so many different facets to it but then also every individual is different so there's so so much to learn from other people's stories and and i find the same any most coaches uh, we had um i met randy huntington in the lensbury who's uh, a chinese jumps coach and he's one of the top athletics coaches in the world he's got the he trained mike powell the current long jump world record holder back in 1990 and i bumped into him in the lensbury gym and i was like i'd love to come would you like to go and have a coffee and chat and I spoke, spoke to him for three or four hours where he, you know, he taught me through the, the whole history of athletics and how S&C almost developed out of that and then gave me a load of, um, a, you know, massive uh, USB stick full of um, papers from years and years and years ago. So I think most coaches are, I wish they, as long as they've got the time, they're very open to talking. Yeah, that's fantastic. No, and I really appreciate your honesty as well because, you know, the conversations that we always have but it's just fascinating to get a real insight into to where you've come from what's influenced you doing what you do so thanks so much it was like we spoke about before but the longer format i enjoy in that Uh, it gives you the space to not rush answers in a way i quite i've quite enjoyed that i have to say probably the longest podcast i've done but well i'll have to see if i can twist dan cottrell's arm to allow me to do another one if if, um if anyone's still with us by now then you've got to get 
got to find people who are willing to speak to you for that long. Yeah. Well, I reckon we could do another two and a half hours if, if, if we get the chance. So, look, Tom, thanks ever so much, and uh, I'll speak to you soon. Yeah, catch you soon, mate. Cheers, mate.